magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everybody and welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and today I have a very special guest. He's a horseman named Tick Maynard. Now I met Tick at a uh, horse expo in I believe Massachusetts a number of years ago. And I watched him work with horses and I was just, I was pretty amazed at his ability and and, uh, we got chatting there and I learnt that he'd just written a book. So he's an author of a book called In the Middle Are the Horsemen. Uh, It's published by Trafalgar Square Books. Amazing book if you ever want to read that. And before I um, had him come on here, I had him send me a bio and there's things on here I didn't know about Tick. So think about this, this guy's pretty well-rounded sort of a fella so he's a horse trainer, but he has a BA in history from the University of British Columbia. He was an athlete in the modern pentathlon. So he was on the Canadian national team from 2005 to 2008, and he represented Canada at the Pan American Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in 2007. Now, if you don't know what the modern pentathlon is, it's fencing, and that's not building a barrier to stop one horse getting in with the other horse. It's sword fighting, basically. Fencing, freestyle swimming, show jumping, and then a combined event that combines shooting and cross-country running. So he can, he's done all that. He also has been long-listed and short-listed for the Canadian national team for three-day eventing. He has was the winner of the uh, Thoroughbred Makeover Freestyle in 2015 and 2018. And he's also a, a clinician, travels around, does lots of clinics. And so a pretty well-rounded sort of a fella and uh, an amazing guy to talk to. So let's uh, let's talk to Tick Maynard. Hey, Tick, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. It's uh, I'm pretty happy to be here. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, just in the intro a second ago, I was saying that I met you at a horse expo in, I think it was Massachusetts, uh, Equine Affair in Massachusetts, and it was about three years ago, wasn't it? I think it was the winter of 2018, I think. My book had just come out, so that's kind of a reference point in my mind. And it was the first time I think I'd done a big horse expo like that. And it was the first time I met you. And uh, it was probably actually I got in one of my sessions. I got I think the most da- or the most difficult horse I've ever had in front of a crowd to work with. So that that weekend was very memorable for a few reasons. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I just did a podcast on manifesting. I don't know if you're into that, but I'm really big into manifesting, and I think. I I might have manifested you there, not even knowing I manifested you. It was just like, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure I, I put it out there. I, I want to meet one of the other clinicians that's really cool this weekend. And uh, I know one of your influences is Jonathan Field, and we'll get to Jonathan later. But uh, I met him at a horse expo, I forget how many years ago, probably six or seven years ago now. And when I went to that horse expo, I kind of like my goal here is to meet Jonathan Field because I knew he was going to be presenting at it. But I wanted to um, track him down and, and meet the guy because I had a lot of people say, hey, you need to meet Jonathan, F- Jonathan Field. And the very first morning of the expo, the, the doors have just opened and I'm in the booth and this guy with a cowboy hat and a beard walks up and says, hey, I'm Jonathan Field. And I'm like, oh, there you go. So I didn't have to go hunt him down. I, I found him. And it was kind of the same thing happened when I met you. The doors had just opened the first day of the expo and you had to do a demo in 
an arena that wasn't it was in the same building we were in it wasn't very far from our booth and you came up to the booth and introduced yourself and then you said hey uh, i need a flag for a demo do you have a do you have a flag and so i gave you one of those those ones we get from cali crickenberg one of those extendable ones and off you went to do your demo yeah and uh i i those those flags are great they extend out i you know i don't know cali but i know uh, i think her name's sarah from the horse education company right. and yep. she's yep. been great um and I also remember, you know, one of the things we had in common was we both knew Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Field. And I love the way you described him, which was, you know, the warmth you get from just being around him is I think you compared it to the warmth you get from sitting around a, a little bonfire in the evening. And it's just the warmth just comes off and you can just feel it on, on, you know, in your hands and in your body and in your shoulders. And Jonathan's just such a amazing guy. He was, you know, the first big influence and the first big mentor I had in the, you know, in this world that we call horsemanship or, or whatever you want to call it. And I remember when I first met him, I remember really vividly going into his place. I was with somebody, I didn't know much about him, but I was with somebody that was looking to buy a horse that he just happened to have for sale for one of his friends. And we went in there and he was playing with one of his horses. You know, he's got these amazing little, uh, most of them are quarter horses, but he's got this great connection with them. And he was just walking up the long side the horse was at liberty uh no halter or lead or anything like that and he would stop and the horse would stop and he would go and the horse would go and then he started to get a little faster and you saw the horse's connection to him change sort of like a cow horse you know like really getting in sync with him and and jonathan would trot off and then halt and, and the horse would almost do a little sliding halt and i remember afterwards jonathan explaining to me a little bit about what he was doing and he compared it to a flock of birds or a school of fish or a mare and a foal, how they get in sync with each other. And I had, before that moment, I had never seen somebody do that with a horse before. And it, it was one of those moments with horses in my life that gave me goosebumps, just seeing something like that for the first time or seeing it done better than anybody else has ever done it. And uh, it'll stay with me forever. And it's one of those just small moments that's inspired me for the last 10 or 15 years. Is that that level, little oval, half oval covered arena at his place with the white cover over it? Yeah, he's got a white coverall. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think he's a move. Yeah. Well, I, I think he's moved now from there. I think that was his dad's yeah. place. But his dead place. It yeah. really lets the light in in a friendly way there. Yeah, I've been to that place and had the same experience watching him do stuff like goosebump sort of stuff. But yeah, he is one of those guys that um, yeah, he has a certain energy about him. It's just an openness. You know, like he he doesn't have any walls up around him. He's very open. And, and there's going to be some questions I'll ask you later in this podcast. And as you know, I, you know, I give people a list of questions to choose some stuff from. And one of the questions that you didn't choose that is, is a question is what qualities do you admire in people? And when I, I, so I did a podcast where I answered all the questions and I said in that, I said that my, um, what I admire in people had changed over the years. You know, I've had a lot of, in the past, had a lot of fear. And so for me, the the quality I admired in people was bravery, like physical bravery. But as I've overcome that sort of. Let me interrupt you for one sec, because I was listening uh, a couple of days ago to your, your podcast with Mustang Maddie. And if anybody hasn't listened to that, that's a fantastic one to listen to. And I think you said something like, uh, you know, bravery, and you said now it's an openness or a vulnerability is your new thing. And 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 immediately I thought, wait a sec, you're missing the whole link here, which is the whole Brene Brown thing that you're talking about, which is that 
vulnerability is bravery. It's a, you know, it's, it's, you haven't actually changed what you admire. You've just changed how you see it. Well, I, I think I've changed the type of bravery. Yes. The, yeah, you know, yeah, one's, yeah. one's, one's a, a physical bravery that I think now is actually rooted in, rooted in shame or perfectionism or whatever, which means it's pretty fake. But the, but the, the openness, people that are really open and Jonathan Fields, one of those people. And I think that's part of that energy you get off Jonathan is the fact he's so open. He's got no ego. He's just, he's just who he is. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very pleasant sensation to be around. And everybody I've ever met who knows Jonathan says the same thing. I've never met anybody go, Oh, that guy's an ass. You know, like they're all like, oh, yeah, isn't he the coolest dude? Everybody that's ever met Jonathan has the same. Yeah, so that's what I did say in that that thing. The answer to the thing was, you know, I used to be, I used to admire bravery. Now I admire that. And it's not, I don't think it's the vulnerability to be open, but it's just that, that openness. I, I, I think once you get past being brave about being vulnerable, you're just left with the openness. You know, that's the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the the, the purest, purest form of it. The initial part is, you know, the initial part about being being vulnerable, I think does take a lot of bravery. But I think the more you practice it, the more you're open, the more you listen to people, I think the easier it gets. But maybe that's the same with anything, that as you practice it, it takes, it becomes easier. It takes a little bit less bravery because you get better at it. Yeah. And I think you start to lean into it instead yeah. of shy away from it, you know. And and, and it's it's the, you know, I just... I think you heard me talk about it with Maddie, but I just came back about a month ago from a three-day, what was called a men's emotional resilience retreat, and it was just mind-boggling. But the thing about that was you're there with all these, some of them are tough guys, like one guy was a, a former UN hostage negotiator. You know, one guy's a first responder, is uh, a fireman. Um, there's a guy from New York there who's just a beast of a man. And when it comes down to it, everybody's fears the same. You know what I mean? They just when they when when you get around a group of men and they they're actually authentic, like they spill their guts and they tell you exactly how they feel and what they what hangups they have and what they're afraid of and all that sort of stuff. They they did a thing there about two days into it. They call, they call going into the abyss, and you sit in the front of the room and it's this full on couple of hour thing where you're just letting everything out. And the first they said, "Who's going to go first? And the first guy that went, I'm sitting there thinking. Oh God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I'm doing this. And then the second guy went, and I'm thinking, I don't do this. By the, by the end of the second guy, then they're like, who's going next? Like me. I'm I'm ready. Like I um I can see what, what it does for you, but I'm I'm not scared of it now. I'm excited about it. You know what I mean? And so yeah, it was pretty cool. But um getting back to when we first met, you know, you borrowed the flag and you went over to do that demo. And I said to my wife Robin, she she stayed in the booth. I said, I'm gonna go over and watch Tick and see what he does. And you had, I think you had three horses there and they're all different types. I think one was kind of, you know, wanted to be in your space a lot and a bit clingy and, a, and, and not real reading of your energy. And then there was one, I think that was kind of spooky. And then there was one that was, had like a, you know, some inner turmoil to where there's some pinned ears and stuff like that. I forget, but they were, none of them were easy. And I think one of them, the person had the horse was a little girl. And I went over and I watched you, um, work with those horses and I just how you chose to interact with those horses and the finesse with which you did it and the and the intuition you had to deal with each horse and each human on the level they were at you know just it was 
pretty amazing to watch. And I actually, I texted Robin. We could actually dig out my phone records if you didn't believe me. But I texted, I'm sitting there beside the arena and it's about 15 minutes in and I texted Robin and I said, I don't know much about horses. Meaning watching you kind of gave me a an insight into how much I didn't know. And I, and I was pretty sure I was at, you know, at the point where I, I you know, I knew what I, I, I kind of, knew how much I didn't know, but watching you do that, it's like, oh, there's just so much to this stuff. It was, it was very, very cool to watch. And it inf- I think it influenced me quite a bit. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's, that's got to go up there as one of the top three or four compliments I've ever, you know, I've, 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 ever, I've ever gotten in my life. That's really, that's really nice. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I remember from that weekend, another, another really generous thing that you did was you, um, I think it was on the Friday you came by and, then I don't know if you already had a copy of my book or you got a, a copy on the Friday, but I remember you came back on the Sunday and it was right before we were all heading home. You know, I was, you know, it was right at the end of the day. People are starting to leave. All our sessions are done. I was heading back to Ocala in Florida. And I think you were heading back to California and you came by the Trafalgar Square books booth. And I was saying goodbye to, to the nice ladies there that run it that I think you've met, but I want to chat with you about that later. And uh, you bought a whole box of books, which I think there's 18 or 20 in a box. And I was so, uh, so kind of flattered and, and honored that you would do that. I mean, I don't even think my parents have bought a box. I don't even think my parents have bought one book. I think I gave them a book. So that was pretty nice. And then, uh, and then we sat together and I signed every single book to somebody that you were going to give it to for Christmas, you know, like family or friends or something like that. And, uh, and that was pretty fun. You know, I, I, I love that story of you doing that. And I love, you know, I, I love that you did that. You know, not many people would do that. And I tell that story at a lot of clinics that I do. And, and I kind of share the, the word about what you're doing. And I tell them about, you know, your videos and podcasts and stuff. So I really appreciate that. Oh, thanks. You know, that was, I, I usually buy, if I have a book that during the year that like kind of hits me and I'll usually buy uh, a number of those books for friends of mine for Christmas who are on kind of on the same path, but I don't usually get to buy a book that mum and dad would read too. But that one, I got one for everybody, including mum and dad. And um, I got, I got to say, so I had, I had tick sign, you know, a little bit of something to so-and-so, you know, whatever, enjoy your journey with your horse, whatever in the books, but mum and dad's, I said, write something to my mum and dad. And it said something like, Oh, I don't know. Something like you must be tough if you put up with this kid for eighteen years. I don't know. Something like that. They they yeah, appreciate. I, it. And I, I think we've got to have a, a shout out to your parents here. They did a good job. Uh, that was pretty funny too. But so tell us about your book. So the title of your book, I would have mentioned this in the in the intro, is called "In the Middle Are the Horsemen," and it's such an interesting line. And that line is so cool because it's part of a a paragraph in the book and there's a horseman you're talking to and he says so see those guys over there doing that and then see those guys over there doing the complete opposite somewhere in the middle of that you know somewhere in the middle are the horsemen and I just that was not only is it the title if even if it wasn't the title I think I would have remembered that out of the book more than anything can you tell us exactly what that said or who said it or anything about that, I yeah, I mean, I don't remember, I, I, you know, at word for word, everything he said, but I definitely remember who said it and, and where they said it and, and what we were talking about. 
And it was uh, a guy called Bruce Logan, who's uh, sort of a cowboy. He, he starts a lot of horses. He, uh, he competes in cutting. And I got introduced to him by Jonathan Field, who, who we've talked about. I think if anybody's listening and I kind of repeat any of this, it's because we've had some technical difficulties and had to repeat a little bit of this podcast. But, you know, Jonathan Field is an amazing guy. And, and he was pretty quick to put me in touch with Bruce Logan in Texas. And we went, uh, I went down there, not having met him before. And, you know, one thing that was funny was before I went down there, you know, this guy, like in the heart of rural Texas, a cowboy, you know, like he travels in cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. And that's like normal for him. And I remember texting him, you know, I I think I texted him something like, do you think I should bring my, my riding pants and boots, like implying my English riding pants and boots. And, And he just, he just said something like, if that would make you feel more comfortable, you know, or something like that. And I was just like, Oh my God, I, you know, I didn't bring them. I just got, I bought some jeans I bought some cowboy boots and I went down there and I, I, I spent the winter with him and there were so many firsts for me there. You know, it was the first time I'd ever started a horse, like put the first ride on a horse. It was the first time, you know, would try to catch a horse in a 10 acre field that didn't want to be caught. It was the first time I'd tried roping something. It was the first time I, he'd roped a horse, you know, in front of me. And uh, it was just, you know, it was a really memorable time. I don't think we had electricity or Wi-Fi where I was staying. And it was just really a few months where it was just about, you know, just about the horses. He's one of those guys that was, I think, brought up in a really get her done kind of way, a, cow, a kind of cowboy way. And he got introduced to this idea of horsemanship. And he started to, you know, go down that road where a lot of stuff, it's not so much always about the purpose, I think is how he saw it, but more about just being nice or just being kind, but you're not really going anywhere. And sometimes you lose that sense of having a reason for doing things or going out and working and having working dogs and working animals. And for him, you know, for Bruce Logan, I think it was really about joining those two worlds, whereas you've got a purpose, you've got to check fence lines or you got to bring the cows in and your dogs have to, you know, they got to work. But really, he was trying to do it the best way that he knew how, taking into account how a horse's body works and how a horse's mind works. You know, and he said, you don't want to be all one way or all the other way. And that was probably one of the also the first big moments for me in my life where I started to really see a lot more gray area in how people train horses, that not everything is black and white, but that you can have multiple people be right. They can say different things and do different things and they can both be right. Ever since then, I've just liked that idea. And obviously it became the title of the book that, you know, you're, you want to kind of, you know, he wanted to end up in the middle. I think I kind of want to end up in the middle that you can see both sides, take into account both sides and change depending on the situation. Yeah. So what, what year was this? Do you remember? Oh my God. It was, it uh, probably around 2009 give or take a year okay so this you know this uh podcast is called the journey on podcast and i'm trying to get people in here who are on a journey you know they're not doing the same thing they've been doing for 25 years and so you were at this point in time you're a successful uh eventer aren't you so at this point, um, I've only been eventing actually for a couple of years. I'd say most of my background up to that point was in show jumping. I'd ridden okay. my whole life. Uh, my parents rode. Uh, I did the whole pony club thing. And uh, I was just getting into eventing actually at that point. 
Okay, so but this is after you've gone to Europe and lived with these stuffy old German dressage masters and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's the thing is I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure I could count on one hand if I could find them, the number of people in the world who have spent the time to go to Europe and put up with these stuffy old German guys telling you you're doing everything wrong and be on enough of a journey to go to the middle of Texas and live in a trailer with no plumbing to learn from some old cowboy dude. I mean, that's a that's a very open attitude that not many people have. I mean, that's the, those are some pretty extremes right there. From You know, a lot of people go to one of those or the other ones and never even consider about going to the other side. And you've kind of, you're one of the few people, I think, who have really looked into the total opposite ends of the spectrum like that. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And actually, you know, I, I went at like a part of the book is about the process and the experience of being a working student. And a lot of working students are doing, you know, going through that process when they're, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20. And for me, it happened a little bit later, which had its pros and cons. And I think one of the, one of the good things about it is I was able to put myself in different situations like that. And I don't think I would have been mature enough to do that five years ago and be able to say, I want both of these experiences and be, you know, because a lot of the times you hear stuff and it's on the surface is contradictory. And I think if I had done that same journey five years earlier, I think I would have just been frustrated. I wouldn't have understood it. I wouldn't have been able to look deeper. And I think it's one of those things that happened just at the right point in my life. And so you don't just got into the eventing. Is it so? Is it the Canadian national show jumping team or eventing team you've been shortlisted for? So yeah, right around right after that, I, you know, I, there's a there's a bunch of people that I worked for before I went out and I started my own business. But I had a, a really good horse, uh, her, a mare. Her name was Sapphire, and my dad actually bought her as a show jumper right around that time. And I would kind of go off and be a working student for a little while, and I'd come back for a few months and ride that horse. And uh, I had a pretty strong background in show jumping and, you know, I'd ridden my whole life and done a lot of stuff. And so I kind of moved up the ranks pretty quickly with that mare and we got on some of the lists for the Canadian team and it was all, uh, you know, happening right around the same time, actually, you know, where I would go off and become a working student and then I'd come back home and I'd ride that horse. And then do you know, I don't know, do you know, Karen and David O'Connor? Have you ever met them? I've not met them now. I know who they are. Of course, you know who they are. Yeah. So they, I worked for them for a while and they, the starting horses and and working in a rope halter and understanding how horses move and think that's a really big deal for them. And when I worked for them, that's kind of actually I worked for them even before I met Jonathan Field. They were the first ones to introduce that idea to me of reading a horse's body language and, and communicating uh, with horses that way. And that riding isn't sort of the be all and end all of everything. And then later on, after you know, after I'd been through some of these experiences and I started my own business then and I had this mare sapphire that was competing then I went back and I was taking lessons from David O'Connor as part of the Canadian national team which was pretty cool and that national team what are they going to what would they be going to compete at so the the way yeah so I didn't actually go to the Olympics or the Pan Ams but exactly when you're talking about a national team you're you're trying to qualify for the Pan Am games or the Olympic games wow and what year was that uh 2012 and then again i I had a pretty close run in 2016 so how many are on one of those teams four yeah between you know but when you talk about the world equestrian games and the olympics and the pan ams it's between four and six 
Uh, it depends on the depends on some stuff that I don't know anything about. And when you're shortlisted for that, how many is on that list? You know, a long list could be pretty much anybody that's qualified at that level. So for Canada, you might be talking about, you know, 40, 40 horse rider combinations. In the United States, you might be talking about 100 horse rider combinations. And then for the short list, you know, in Canada, you're probably talking 10 horse rider combinations. And the United States, you're probably talking like 20. Um, you know, it's not just the people that have qualified. You know, just getting to that level and eventing, having a horse that can compete at that level is is hard enough, you know, and then the, the you know, an eventing more than a lot of sports it, it, at the end, it can almost become for smaller countries, sort of a, you know, a, a battle of attrition, meaning, you know, which horses and, is, and riders are going to be sound leading up to the actual games, because there's a lot of sort of casualties as you go along there. Yeah. And, and so if you think about the point I'm trying to make here is you were shortlisted. So you didn't go to the Olympics or the, the Pan American Games, but you are shortlisted. So you're, let's say, in the top 10, which means you are at that at that level, extremely high level, the elite level of that. But then, like I said, you're, you're going to Texas and living in a trailer so you can learn stuff from an old cowboy. And that's just a – oh, I just think that's an amazing mindset to have because a lot of people – who are, you? I mean, you are one of the very few people in any of the horse disciplines who is good enough to be at the elite level of whatever discipline they choose. So competition they choose, but also really has a mind into the whole horsemanshipy thing. I mean, there's not there's not many out there. It's 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 a one or the other sort of a thing. You know, you spend your whole life trying to get to the Olympics and the eventing or whatever it is to the elite level of whatever your discipline is. Or you you spend your whole life trying to really get into the mind of the horse and having you know it's just such a oh it's an odd combination of uh, very you admirable know, it, combination it, you know it, it is an odd combination and I, 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 I along the way I've had people straight up you know people that are close to me and saying this not in a way to rude but but they're trying to be polite and they're trying to be helpful and say you know say to me you shouldn't do this. You can't do this. Trying to have your foot in both these worlds will be a detriment to your career. You need to pick one of these things and do that really well rather than trying to do both. And I mean, what turned out is the opposite is entirely true. First of all, you know, I've gotten better at both those things because I learned from each discipline. And also, you know, in terms of teaching clinics and stuff like that, it's been a huge boost to be able to draw people into experiencing, a, you know, this idea of horsemanship and communication and motivation, people that only have a competitive background. So not only has it sort of helped my career as a competitor, it's helped my career as a clinician. And it's also, I think, brought this idea to so many people in the English world that don't want to hear it from a cowboy. Right. That's, that's, that's the thing. I think you are you know, like I said, not only are you elite level at some competition and in the horsemanship part, you're an elite level in a world that never really looks at that horsemanship thing. A lot of times I think there's some dogma about the guy with the cowboy hat. You know, like when I was, I don't train horses for the public, but when I was training horses for the public here, I got a lot of uh, venting horses and jumping horses and dressage horses that had problems. And I found out one time why at least one of those people sent the horse to me. 
they sent the horse to me because I wear a cowboy hat. So obviously I'm going to get on and ride the buck out of it, which is the furthest thing from the yeah, truth. But that was the that was the perception why they're sending the horse to me because he wears a cowboy hat. So he's just going to ride the ride the bad stuff out of it. And, and you know that and, is not that's not unique or rare. That's a really that exists everywhere and it's very common. Like it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's you know it's a little bit like you're a little bit like say so, you know have you ever met Vicky Wilson? I haven't, but I've I've wa- I've not met her, but I've watched her compete at Road to the Horse. I've, yeah, know, like I've so Vicky Wilson coming on Road to the Horse. I mean, yeah. you know, she only got in Road to the Horse, I think, because Chris Cox's wife had back surgery that year, and and Tootie yeah. Blaine needed another a female. And I think the story was she asked Dean James, yeah, do you know anyone that could do this? He goes, ah, oh, there's this girl in New Zealand, but she she's an English rider. And Tootie's like, well, that might be just strange enough to be interesting and she comes back and she and she wins it and you know vicky's you know yeah vicky's so so vicky's kind of in the same situation to where she you know someone in that that discipline that's completely out of the box you know what i mean and i i I just i I think it's a wonderful thing what you're doing because and i'm not saying this is not judgmental at all of people in your discipline but they tend to like i said they tend to look at people with the cowboy hats like oh they're just they're just cowboys you know they don't know anything about what i do Whereas when someone of your level, you know, who can be shortlisted for the Olympics or the or the WEG or the Pan American Games or whatever, can bring those ideas to them, I think that's that's just I think that's that's amazing because uh, and and tell me if you think this is um, what you, if, if you agree with this, but I really think once not not when you first hear about it, but once you understand this stuff, you can't not see it you can't get oh yeah i get it but i i don't like that i'm going back to what i used to do you you can't you can't unsee it can you and and not only that but you just it's almost becomes addictive and you just go more and more in that direction like you just go more and more down the rabbit hole and you just start seeing more and more and you just you know you just start reading books and seeing dvds and start relating stuff you know like you saw the uh my octopus teacher and you just start realizing how all these things are connected and and uh it's so it's so fun as well yeah my octopus teacher what did you think of that <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it was phenomenal and actually uh you know the the there's so many things about phenomenal you know phenomenal you know amazing about it actually but one of my one of the things that really brought me back to you know i grew up in vancouver in canada was just swimming in really cold water and how alive that can make you feel I don't know. I don't know where you, where you grew up. Where in Australia was there cold water there where you grew up? No, not at all. You, have you ever not been swimming? In, bit, have you ever been swimming in like really, really cold water and just staying in there for ten or fifteen minutes and you're just like, you know, it just gets your blood flowing in a way. I have an ice bath every day. I've been oh, taking cold showers for almost two years, and I have a chest freezer that's full of water that I get in every day. So it's only for two minutes, but it's. You know, that's one of the things about that my octopus teacher that really got me in the beginning. So I've done, I've done quite a bit of uh, like breath work, and I've done, you know, I, I have the, I'd been doing cold showers for about a year before I started with the chest freezer, maybe a year and a half. And that chest freezer, I have it set about forty-eight degrees Fahrenheit, so about eight degrees Celsius. Wow. Sometimes it gets down to about forty-three, so about five, four or five degrees Celsius which is really quite cold for me. The 48's pretty cold, but that guy in my octopus teacher, that's what temperature the ocean is, and he gets in there and stays in there. And he's yeah, been he, sitting there. There's something about, and he's diving for yeah. minutes, I don't know how long, but minutes at a time. It's, it's, yeah. 
yeah, you can imagine how you'd feel when you got out of that water. Yeah, so when the first thing it starts, and I'm like, okay, there's the cold. I, I get that because he says you get to where you actually crave the cold. Yeah. And I still have to talk myself to get into that chest freezer every day. But when I get out, after you get it, and in there it's no fun, but it's like a lesson in acceptance, you know. But when you get out, the feeling you get after you're out of there, you just feel so vibrant, alive, and ooh, it's pretty cool. So there was that bit. Then there was the breathing bit, and I'm pretty sure he didn't show how he does it, but I'm pretty sure he kind of hyperventilates before he goes down. And have you ever done any Wim Hof breathing? No, but tell me about it. So Wim Hof's the ice, they call him the ice man. You know, he holds the world record for the longest under ice swim at the polar cap. He holds the world record for the longest submersion in ice. Um, he's climbed uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. He climbed Mount Everest in a pair of shorts, no shirt. Um, wow. He, um, but anyway, he does this, this breathe, he does the cold therapy, but he also does this breathing thing where it's, so it's really deep abdominal breathing in and out your mouth with no pauses after the in or after the out. And you do like rounds of say 30 to 40 of those. And then on the last, on the last inhale, oh, sorry, in the last exhale, you breathe out and then see how long you can hold your breath. And the first time you do it, you can hold your breath for about two minutes because you really oxygenate your blood. Yeah. So you hold you hold your breath for about two minutes. I mean, hold for a long until you feel like you gasp and you got to get taken air. But it, the first time I tried it, I held my breath for about two minutes. And I remember as a kid in the swimming pool, you'd try to work on holding your breath, and you go down and hold yourself at the bottom of the ladder under the water, and you know you time each other or whatever. And even when I was doing a lot, I never held it for two minutes. But yeah, so I think that guy with the octopus teacher is doing that, you know, that hyperventilating stuff so you can get in there. So there's that bit. But then he starts having the relationship with the octopus. I mean, oh, my goodness. I really think there's, there's life before watching my octopus teacher and there's life after watching my octopus teacher. You can't watch that and not, not be affected by that, not really start to think about, holy cow. And then also you start to wonder, um, you know, when you look at horses or you look at dogs, you really get to know any any animal like we had growing up we had ducks and chickens and sometimes would raise them and you start to realize that they're all unique as well like just because a horse is a horse every horse is different and every dog is different you also start to realize that other creatures like ducks and chickens they can all have their own unique personalities and then you start to wonder with that octopus is that an average octopus or is that a smart octopus or are their octopuses a lot smarter like where you know how how you know What's this world of octopuses look like? An octopus is actually the right term because after I watched that movie, I, I downloaded an audio book called The Soul of an Octopus. And oh, this I've got to read you the subtitle for this book because it's not just about octopuses. But it does say in the very start of it that octopuses is the right term because um, octopus is Greek and the the whole I thing for plural is Latin and you don't cross Greek with Latin. So it's actually not octopi. It is actually octopuses. There you go. So you were being, you, it's a very good book, but the, the subtitle, I've got to look at here on my phone. The subtitle of this thing uh, is a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness. 
That's the subtitle of The Soul of an Octopus, but it's about a um, a lady who has a lot of interactions with an octopus in a um, in an aquarium, one of the major aquariums. I think it might be the one in Baltimore, maybe. But just the personality octopuses have, and 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 they're all different. They all have quirks, but they're all as smart as that octopus in that that movie. I mean, I think they're actually smarter than we are. They, like that. <laughs> Higher, more highly developed cognitive function than we do because they've got eight legs yeah. and each one of their eight legs yeah. has like 24 suckers on them yeah. and they can manipulate each one of those suckers individually. It's kind of like think about a concert pianist playing the piano. Got ten fingers. The yeah. cognitive functioning you've got to have to be able to get that stuff to work. Like they've done functional MRIs on, on um, concert pianists and, and like some of the – you know the the neural synapses that they've they've created being able to do that, but we've only got ten fingers. But you know these octop- octopuses have eight tentacles, and I think they've got twenty four suckers on each one. Each one can pick up a bowling ball. They can suck hard enough to pick up a bowling ball. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Octopuses, you know, they can blend into a the the background color. The chameleon, yeah. They're colorblind. So they can't actually see that color with their eyes. They actually sense the color with their skin. They've got optical receivers in their skin. Like, listen to this book. It's like, oh my god, they're aliens, and they are—they got way more stuff going on than we'll ever have. Pretty fascinating show, but uh, yeah, I, you know what? I might get into some of these questions while we're chatting here, because um, we, we talked about your book. Tell me, actually, tell me about your book. So. Um, it's been out for about three years now. How's it, how's it gone? Uh, you know, the big thing that I wanted to do, when, you know, I'm sure you can relate to this because for, for anybody uh, that's been following you, Warwick, uh, I think people have been hoping for a book, you know, from you. And, I, and uh, I'm kind of hoping you're going to do a book as well. And if you're going to do a book, almost inevitably – it's going to, it's hopefully you're not approaching it, uh, you know, about the money or about how many books you're selling. It's about trying to do something that you're going to be proud of trying to do something that you can look back on, you know, in 20 years and still be proud of trying to do something that you, maybe you don't enjoy every minute of it, but you enjoy the creative process of it. You enjoy the writing of it. Um, and then, you know, and then it just matters, you know, like how you define success. If you look at people, you know, professional writers that are making a living writing books, uh, I'm definitely, you know, it's definitely not that far. Most, you know, if, if anybody's actually interested in numbers, most um, publishers, I guess, do not release the statistics for how many or the numbers for how many books are sold. But my book, uh, they actually gave me permission to do it. And we've sold uh, just over 10,000 books. That's so cool. my from my perspective, that's pretty good. You know, if you were to make a living as an author, that wouldn't get you very far. But I'm pretty happy with it. You know, the, the bigger thing, I guess, is when people reach out to me, which happens, you know, sometimes at clinics once in a while, I, I'll get an email and they they say they've read my book and they say it it changed them or affected them in some way or they were inspired to think a different way. I had, you know, one of the one of the nicest things a girl told me, she's probably 15 years old. And she, you know, she said, it, she said, first of all, that she read the book three times and that it changed the way that she had a relationship with her horse. And I, you know, you're better off selling five books and having that happen than selling 200,000 books and not having that happen, I think. 
Oh, yeah, most certainly. Like when I said, how's the book going? I didn't mean, are you making your money off it? Because that's your business. But, the you know, you think about we're in quite an enviable, well, I don't know if it's an enviable position, but it's a it's a pretty amazing position where we we actually have influence, can have an influence, a positive influence in other people's lives. Yeah, I'm not, I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. And I'm not trying to think about how many books I can sell or anything like that. I, 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 you know, like you said, if you can influence, if you can influence one person and make their life, you know, change their life a little bit, that's what it's all about. And I, you know, that's, that's got to feel good knowing that you've sold 10,000 books. And let's say 10% of that, you've made a change in their life. That's a thousand people. I mean, who, who, how many people in their day to day, in their job, gets to? And this is not about ego. About hey, I help so many people, but get, you know, just get to have a positive influence in someone's life to where they you might change the way they look at things. Like this girl said, it changed the interactions I've had with my horse. You know, and she's fifteen. And think about. You know, you think about the mindset you get when you start looking at things that way. She's 15. I mean, I didn't get this mindset for a long, 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 long time. Think about the influence she might have over her friends with horses and the influence they have over their friends with horses. And it's not just about the horses, but it's about that carries over into every aspect of your life. And think about the influence you will have upon their children. You know what I mean? This is this is. This stuff, I think, really not only changes lives, but is can help change the, in a slight way, change the course of humanity. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. How's um, how's your book coming? Um, slowly. I mean, it's I've got I've got most of it written. I mean, you know, it's it's um, I don't know. How many, do you remember how many words your book is? That is a great question. So, have you researched this at all? Word count for books? Yep, yep, yep. yep. Oh, you know, for it depends, you know, our suggested word count for different genres. You know, if you're writing science fiction or, or nonfiction or a novel or a beach read or a romance novel, they have sort of different suggested word counts for you. But also, if you look at, you know, if you Google, you know, most successful books of all, of all time and, and word length, you know, it runs the whole gamut. You've got, you know, books like The Old Man in the Sea or The Pearl by Hemingway and Steinbeck that are very short. They're novellas and they're two of the best books ever written. And then you've got, you know, like War and Peace and Lord of the Rings and, and stuff like that, which are huge long books. But, uh, you know, what they told me was they wanted, uh, they wanted the book to be around 80 to 90,000 words. Yeah. And it ended up being about, I think, 500 words over a hundred thousand words. So just over a hundred thousand words. Yeah. So I'm, I think I've got like sixty thousand down. I'm, I'm I'm aiming in in that you know eighty to ninety thousand range. Um, I just have to be careful it doesn't turn into two hundred thousand. You know, I mean that's a you know I, I did a, a TV show for. Um, initially, I started doing this TV show for Farm and Ranch TV in in here in the US, and it's a Roku. It's a Roku channel, and it's like Netflix where it doesn't matter how long an episode is, and so I could just get my ideas out and be done with it. But then Horse and Country TV in the UK picked it up and it's it's a half hour slot. And so I've got to do 22 minutes with a break at 11 minutes. And that was the hardest thing for me to get, you know, to get a full thought out 
and but keep it running up to 11 minutes and then be able to stop and be able to come back and pick up that thought and go for another 11 minutes. And the book's kind of the same thing to where it could be war and peace or it could be, you know, the grapes of wrath. It could be short, it could be long. And so, um, you know, yeah. being concise so is, is harder. Like you said, being concise is harder than being wordy. And when I write, you know, I, I enjoy writing and I do a lot of articles and stuff is I usually end up sort of like, you know, you're doing, you're going to end up twice the word length that you want. You know, if I'm writing an article and I want it to be, you know, 1500 words, I usually end up writing a 3000 word article and then cutting half of it out little by little. Yep. Get all the ideas down and then just start chipping away at the bits you don't need instead of trying to yeah. write to 15. Yeah. And I've, I've found some of the articles I've written came out that way. So your book, it started out as a series of articles, didn't it? Yeah, right around the time I, I went down this path of wanting to be a working student and learn, learning more about horses and trying to decide if this was going to be a career for me, I, I wanted to write about it. Uh, and I found a little magazine in British Columbia and I, I, um, I submitted, you know, I submitted this article and I think they paid me 50 bucks or something like that. And I was going to do a few of them uh, a year for them as I went off to Germany. Uh, but right from the beginning, I had the idea that I didn't want to just do the articles. I wanted to actually in, become a better writer and, and learn more about writing and the process of writing. So t- I did two things is, is I hired an editor who, you know, cause you can get stuff edited by family members or friends, but it's, uh, for anybody that's done that, they know that it can be a little difficult. They, you know, you either take it personally or they just tell you what you want to hear. You know, it can be hard to find the right person, you know, somebody that you trust and respect in the writing world as well. So I hired an editor and then I also started reading books about writing, about the process of writing. And so, you know, for the first three years, I was, you know, being paid 50 bucks. And then when I switched magazines, I think I got paid, you know, a hundred bucks or something like that for each article. But I was always spending at least twice that on paying somebody to help me learn about writing. And these editors, they're not saying do this, do that. They're like teaching me. They're saying, you know, draw out this theme more or this uh, metaphor is too cliche or, you know, they're not changing it for me. They're, they're giving me suggestions on how to make my writing better. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got a, I've got an editor that I've got some completed chapters and sent them off, sent them off to, and they've come, she's, you know, she's come back with the same sort of thing, like, you know, maybe wrap this, uh, this chapter up or yeah, maybe expand on this theme just a little bit more and yeah, things like that. So some of the chapters are almost pretty complete and some of them are <laughs> just bare bones right now. But uh, it's not, you know, it's not something I enjoy doing because the thoughts come to me too fast and I can't get them out. And then there's like a traffic jam and then it just stops. And then I'm like, oh, shit, you know, I can't get it out. And, and you know, if I was going to be a writer, I think I'd spend time learning how to be a writer, but I'm not going to be a writer. You know, it's, it's, it's just some, you know, I'll probably do two or three books. I don't know. But I want to get this one out of the way first. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I don't think I want to spend a lot of time trying to learn how to be a writer. You know, it's it's the way yep. it's written. It's written pretty much uh, like first person. You know, like yep. like we're having a conversation. It's not terribly structured. I'm not terribly structured anyway. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it's 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 been fun. And um, speaking of books, one of the questions that you chose to. Um, have me ask you is the question that says what book do you recommend the most not your favorite book but one everybody you think everybody should read so i kind of wanted to just talk about books in general with you i do maybe have a couple books in mind but i uh i started listening to your podcast about books that you've read and uh you know we've 
I've read a lot, not all, but I've read a lot of the same books. And so I just, I just loved listening to that. And uh, one of the first books you mentioned is probably, it was probably my favorite book as a teenager all through high school, which is Bryce Courtney's The Power of One. I actually didn't mention that one, but, or did I mention, I don't think I mentioned mentioned that one. You mentioned the name Bryce Courtney. No, Uh, I mentioned it when I talked to the South African dude. Oh, did you? Okay. Okay. Yes. Different podcast, but yes, The Power of One. I love that book. Yeah. And uh, one of the quotes from that book, which gets repeated a few times throughout the book is first with the head, then with the heart. And uh, I think it, I think it also applies to a lot of things, you know, with, you know, even with horses, like you want to do stuff and you want to do the right thing and you want to have your heart be involved, but you also got to know, you got to have some education. You got to know how to read horses. You got to know how to feed horses. You got to, you know, learn how to communicate with horses. You have to take some lessons in order to increase your knowledge. But then in the end, we do want to have that relationship with our heart. So I, I, lo- I love that quote and I love that book. That's, you know, that was one of the first books that comes to mind. I need to go back and read that book before, before you go on. I need to go back and read that book because I, you know, I read it a few times a long time ago, but, um, I think I think you're you're right. You know, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing with the horses now, it, I, I tell people, I quote Sir Richard Branson where he says, "In order to, you know, in order to break the rules, first you need to learn the rules." And a lot of the things I'm doing with horses now, especially giving them a voice and stuff, and allowing them to say no and things like that. If you don't know what you're doing when you do that, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. So I tell people, you kind of got to learn how to to do it. And then you've got to be able to just have the feel and the, you know, the, the flow and the intuition stuff. And so it's, you know, first it's got to be in your head, but then it's got to be in your heart. And I spent, you know, a long time just in my head with the horses. And it's funny, I told you about that, um, that three-day emotional resilience retreat I went to. One of the things they said we're trying to do here is they said we're trying to get you out of your head into your heart. Because a lot of men are kind of shut down to emotions and don't feel. It's all about thinking and it's not about it's not about feeling. And I think when you get to that intuitive level, that heart level, that intuitive level with horses is where all the magic happens. And then, uh, you know, I got a whole list of books here, which I, which I was thinking of trying to pick a favorite here. Oh, no, just Uh, tell us all about them if you want to. I I, I got got a a few here. Yeah. So I wanted to share a quote with you from uh, Steinbeck. Steinbeck's one of my favorite authors. And uh, the interesting thing is there's all these, you know, Probably a large, you know, I would guess that there's a large number of Americans that, you know, grew up and they had to read Steinbeck for school or, you know, but I grew up in Canada and we didn't have to read many American authors. We read mainly Canadian authors and British authors. And so I didn't really discover uh, Steinbeck and then later Hemingway until I was out of high school. And uh, I'm really glad that I read them as an adult. They're so good. I'm going to go back and reread some of them. But I want to share a quote here. Uh that I think I might have actually quoted this in my book. I can't remember, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read this to you here. In human affairs of danger and delicacy, successful conclusion is sharply limited by hurry. So often men trip by being in a rush. If one were to properly perform a difficult and subtle act, he should first inspect the end to be achieved, and then, once he ex- has accepted the end as desirable, he should forget it completely and concentrate solely on the means. By this method, method, he would not be moved to false action by anxiety or hurry or fear. Very few people learn this. 
And the reason I love that is because it's so, it applies to so many things that you can't be thinking about the end while you're doing it. You got to be, you know, in the moment. It definitely applies to, to training horses. And even more than in the horsemanship world where people, you know, a lot of the people that I teach, they don't feel pressured by time. But if you're competing in anything, you have very specific deadlines. You have a competition that you're going to, that you're trying to get ready for. And when you're training your horse, if you're thinking about that and you're trying to get something done with your horse in a hurry and you have that deadline in your mind, you're, it's, it's not going to work. Like it's going to go backwards. And some horses are more sensitive to that than others, but you got to really be in the moment and be in the present. And then, you know, the interesting thing about this quote is it's uh, what they're talking about is somebody's planning a murder. And so, oh, really? it, yeah, somebody's planning a murder. So it doesn't just apply to like the good things that we're doing, but it can apply to, you know, anything, you know, and she's, what she's trying to do is she's trying to figure out how to poison somebody. I think if I remember correctly from the great, is it Hemingway or Steinbeck? Steinbeck. 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 Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the, um, you know, there's a, there's a thing called one of the most spiritual of the ancient Hindu practices is something called karma yoga and karma yoga is applying yourself to a task with no thought as to the outcome of that task. Yeah. And, um, my friend Jane Pike, I don't know if you listen to the podcast with Jane Pike. She's a equestrian mindset coach from New Zealand. But she says, if you're doing the work while you're focused on the outcome, you're not doing the work. That's yeah. what, yeah, you, that's, you, know, you, get, you gave that example also of going out to the field and, and sitting and waiting and sitting and just being in the moment and the horses come up to you. And then somebody came up to you and said they, you know, they were they were sitting in the field and waiting for the horses to come up to them and the horses wouldn't come up and they kept waiting. And you pointed out, I forget what you said, but you said they had that, that's what they wanted in their mind. So they weren't really in the present. Do you remember that story? Yeah, they, yeah, they said, they, I said, they said, I went out the field with the, in the field and I sat, I did that whole thing where you go out there with no expectation and you just sit there. And I sat there for an hour and he never came up to me. Yeah. Like, you just said you went out there with no expectation, yeah. you know, and that's, and that's so hard to get, you know, that it's a mindset, um, you know, I've got a I've got a Mustang here now that's had, I don't know, she's had four or five trailer loads in her life, and the first one would have been very traumatic, just getting chased in there at the Mustang place. But when you put her in the trailer, they've never tied her in the trailer; they put her in there and turn her loose. But she just can't stand still, and when they when they get where she's going, she's just shaking and covered in sweat, poor thing. Um, and the owners were down here yesterday, and when she first got here, she paces back and forth along a fence line. So anywhere you put her, doesn't matter where she is, she wishes she was somewhere else. And I've actually solved that. And, and the, only thing I, the only thing I did with that was whenever she would go and she'd pace, I would go in there and I'd pace with her. i just match steps with her. Wow. And I'd walk up and down with her. I did it for about eight days before she stopped doing it and hasn't done it since. And that's been a couple of months now. But... And she's been here for a couple of months now, and we haven't mentioned the trailer. And recently one of the owners, she's got two owners, the owners said, well, I want to start working on the trailer. I said, oh, well, when are you going to start working on the trailer? I said, oh, probably never. I don't know if, <laughs> you know, when they're that frantic about the trailer, it's probably not yeah. something you'd ever want to fix. But when they, they were down here yesterday and I was telling them, do you realise that you took a horse that – when you put her in a pasture, put her in a pen, put her anywhere, she can't stand still and has to walk back and forth. And then you put her in a trailer and expected her to stand still. 
And I kept saying, none of her trailering problems are trailering problems. And then, well, when do you think it's... When do you think you're going to get this trailer sold? And, what you, and she kept saying trailer, and I said to her, can you promise me something? I don't want you to ever mention the word trailer to me again concerning this horse because it, it has nothing to do with the trailer. The trailer is not the problem. If you focus on that, you're going to miss the, you're going to yeah. miss the, the stuff that's, that's, that's causing that. But I, I'm not sure she will have, you know, two things. They bought their trailer down yesterday, and normally they said she loads perfectly fine, but then she's, frantic in there and yes and i've done she was kind of shut down and she i've done a lot of work with her getting her to actually start communicating how she feels and she's getting a whole lot snortier than she used to and she's getting more worried about stuff and yesterday they brought the trailer down to show me what she does and she wouldn't load in the trailer first time she's never loaded on the trailer and they thought it was a bad thing like no that's a good thing because now she's actually telling us what's going on you can tell where that starts before she's just like okay you want me to get in there i'll get in there but wasn't wasn't expressing how she felt about the whole thing. And, and so I said, I don't really think the trailer is going to be a problem, but promise me, I don't want to hear about the trailer because it's definitely not the problem. You know, that's, uh, I, I had a horse, I still own him. He's retired now, but I had a horse a couple of years ago and uh, he was one of these problem horses that we get and reared and didn't go forward. He was a, a venting horse and he'd, you know, he'd, he, you know, he, he's, he would jump all the jumps, but, I think only because of the adrenaline and the, and the force, like never really given a choice. And at some point when the horse felt enough pressure that would catch up to him and, and, you know, the the rider would get into trouble and, and the horse, you know, the the horse was limited to going all the way to the top, even though he was a very talented horse by, by this coming out at the wrong moments. And I rode that, I took the horse on as a project and I took him to a big event and, you know, you spend sometimes $500 and you travel eight hours to get there. And there's a lot of, you know, sometimes there's a lot of people watching and you feel like you got to get around all these jumps. And I don't think I would have had the confidence to do this even a couple of years before, but this horse stopped at, I think the fifth jump on course. And I didn't close my leg. I didn't use my spur. I didn't use the whip. And he expect like that. You could tell this horse expected me to like his reaction. And I just sat there with people watching, with the other horses still going on course. And I just sat there with this horse just for some reason. I don't, I don't even know why. I just felt like it was the right thing to do. I just stopped and I just waited there almost, you know, in my mind is kind of like, it's, you know, it's okay. Like giving him permission to stop. Um, and then I circled around after, you know, 30 seconds seems like a really long time when you're in a situation like that. But I, right. I probably spent 30 seconds there, letting him just stand in front of the jump and just look at it and with me doing nothing. And then I circled around again. And after that moment, for the rest of this horse's career, he never gave me that feeling like I feel forced over a jump, which makes me want to stop when the going gets tough. Yep. Yeah, I had a I had an eventing mare here a couple of years ago that had a chronic rearing problem and I kind of went back to the start with her but when I when I I had it for about six weeks I think and when I took it back to the the, the owner's also an eventing trainer and I took it back up there and and dropped her off and I said I want to see your jumper I hadn't jumped her you know and we started working on the jumping stuff and sometime during that lesson the trainer said to me wow that's the first time this horse has ever taken me to a jump like she wanted to go to the jump and it, to me it was like just the way I look at things, I'd want a horse to take me to a cross rail, 
You know what I mean? I would want the horse to want to go over the ground rails. I'd want to, I want the horse to take me to everything. And, 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 and this is no, no judgment, but you know, sometimes in the competitive mindset, you're riding a horse and it's not taking you the jump. I'm just going to make it take me to the jump. But at some point in time, you, you're going to run out of that, making them go there. And, and, and at some point in time, you're going to go back and get them to, to want to go there. But it was, you know, I just thought it was funny that she looked at me, she goes, that's the first time she's ever taken me to a jump. It was like, this horse was a two-star eventer. Um, you know, I just thought it was a, an interesting, um, yeah, they definitely, you know, in the fencing world that you definitely have to have this idea with an upper level horse that they're, they're seeking the jump. They're looking to go to the jump. And I've, I've thought about it a little bit, you know, as I go into the horsemanship world about the way that, you know, you can teach uh, in the Western world, which I haven't done much, but a horse can get on a cow and they're seeking the cow. Or, you know, if you watch how Dan James you know, or some of these people that do stuff for movies, they teach a horse to seek a target and go there and stand it. And they're like, they're looking at it with both their eyes and both their ears. And they're going towards something with the, with the understanding. And so, you know, whether you're going towards the pedestal or going towards a cow or going towards this jump, it's all really, you know, three different versions of target training. Like they, they have to understand this is something I'm going towards and if you if they're not if if they're going away from your leg or away from your stick it's not the same thing but once they understand the job it's you know it makes it so much easier and more fun for both of you yeah i think it's kind of the same thing as say maybe getting a horse to to relax and stretch over their top line or riding them in draw runs you know the head goes down in both of them but one of them is a whole level of tension uh, there they achieve the shape but all the wrong muscles are engaged whereas yeah when if they want to do it, the correct muscles are engaged, even though that you know their head's in the same place in relation to their wither or whatever. You know, it's yeah. yeah there's there's a yeah there's a whole different um, yeah different thing going on with the muscles there. Okay, we've got off our books. What what's your? No, no, no. I got, we I just got to spend a couple more minutes on the books. Oh, please. Yeah, I, I I got some more books I wanted I want to share. So I, first of all, when I started thinking about books, I wanted to share with you. Listening to some of your podcasts, you had a lot of nonfiction and I love reading nonfiction because I love understanding stuff the way that people can break it down in certain ways like a b c d or one two three four or this is the way your mind works or these are the four things that motivate horses but when I started to make the list everything pretty much was fiction you know Steinbeck Hemingway uh Neville Shute Elizabeth Gilbert Kurt Vonnegut uh the alchemist for those of you that have read the alchemist but in the past 12 months this, the book, the author that I've enjoyed the most, again, this is somebody I'd never heard of before 12 months ago, but he has now become one of my top five favorite authors. And if uh, he, apparently he's very famous in, in the South, uh, you know, in, in the Southern United States, that's where he was born. That's where he grew up. That's what he writes about. His name is Pat Conroy. And he is such a fantastic author. Have you ever heard of Pat Conroy? I'm writing it down now. So, he, you know, when you talk about people being vulnerable and people being, you know, being brave because they're vulnerable and people being uh, introspective uh, and you talk about words like, you know, some of the themes he has are like this emotional balance, this introspection. He talks about a lot of things that I don't know about that I'm interested in, like what it's like to grow up in the South in the United States, you know, having a relationship to people that fought in the Vietnam War Um he had a really tough relationship with his dad. His dad was physically and emotionally abusive. And a lot of his fiction really draws on his relationship to his dad. 
And one of the things that he says that, you know, for anybody that's had, uh, you know, disagreements with people in their family is how he, how he through fiction brings people along on this journey of forgiveness. And you cannot imagine in some of these books, like you want the, you want sort of this villain of a father sometimes to get his just desserts to be killed or, or the son to get revenge or, or any of these things. And in the end, actually you see this forgiveness happen and you realize that it's almost like the ultimate form of bravery that he can, uh, you know, forgiveness isn't condoning something. Forgiveness isn't necessarily saying that you trust that person. Forgiveness isn't saying that you didn't get hurt. What forgiveness is, it's like a gift to yourself where you let go of the anger and bitterness. And it says, this is our starting point, And I'm willing to go forwards from this starting point instead of holding on to this and going backwards. And he shows all this through some of the most beautiful writing you will ever read. It's, it's, uh, it's really powerful. Wow. It uh, sounds pretty cool. Have you ever read, of a, read a book called Shantaram? No, but I will write that down. No, don't write it down. Don't write it down. The universe will take care of it. Don't worry. Um, The very first line of this book is something about, I I, I learned about forgiveness while I was chained to a wall being beaten. And in that moment, it's very eloquently written. This book's one of the best, one of those books you read and you stop and stare at the wall for a while. Um, But it's like, I, I learned about forgive this first first paragraph the whole book something about i learned about forgiveness while chained to a wall being beaten and in that moment in time i had i had the choice to hate these people or forgive them for their you know how how they were were acting it's just like one of those slap in the face (laughs) paragraphs and it's the very start of the book but yeah 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 Um, okay pat conroy got it what else you got well uh you know, I just wanted to, I think, share his last, uh, Pat Conroy's last thing that I got from his books, which is, you know, he, he's, a, he's a pretty emotional guy. You can tell that from reading his books. But in order to write these books, he somehow has found an emotional, uh, an emotional balance or a way to look at himself and be able to to not just write in a way that is revengeful or bitter, but be able to look at some of his own feelings and, and share them. And I think that's, uh, I just want to relate that back to the horses Um, because to be successful in riding, especially if you have a competitive career, this emotional control, this emotional balance is so important. And uh, I mentioned earlier that I've been riding with David and and Karen O'Connor and uh, they have a big thing, you know, whenever they have a, a Thanksgiving or a, a Christmas and they have some of their teenagers or staff around that ride with them is they they don't put up with kids not being polite. And they used to try to explain it, you know, that being polite is just for the sake of being polite. And then they tried to say, you know, being polite is important if you ever want to have owners in this sport. And David was just telling me the other day that, the, you know, one of the ways he has, you know, he relates that idea to these kids now is he says, learning how to be polite, to shake somebody's hand, to look them in the eye, to get up, even though it might be a little awkward and take the dishes in to wash them or whatever it is. He says, that's the first step 
of learning the emotional control that you need to be a top level competitor. And I thought that was so interesting how he related that. And when I see, you know, when I, when I see all these books, they're, they're able to take really intense emotions and they're able to share them, you know, through stories that's taken a lot of thought and a lot of introspection. And, and those are the kind of like novels that really attract me. Um, yeah, what you said that David said a minute ago, it's very Mr. Miyagi, you know, wax on, wax off. Like, why am I painting the fence? You know, I want to learn karate, but it's all yeah. related. Yeah. It's all related. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't watched Cobra Kai, have you? I've seen the first three. Uh, you started watching it, didn't you? Yeah, I started watching it, yeah. It's yeah. just as cheesy as any other 80s show, but we ended up watching the whole two seasons of it. because I got to catch up. Yeah, it's just it's just nostalgia. I wouldn't say it's riveting drama by any means, but it's just nostalgia, and they play some pretty cool '80s hairband music, so it's pretty good. Well, I want to know who came up with this idea of creating the TV show after 35 years. Was it those two guys, like let's having a drink and in, in the bar and saying let's 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 bring these characters back to life, or whose whose idea was that? I don't know, but. Uh... Yeah, it was probably them because, like, you know, there's so much good drama on TV these days, and that was not one of them. <laughs> it was not very well acted or very well written. But if you take it for what it is, it's it's enjoyable. You know, if you're a child of the 80s, it's, it was pretty cool. So you got any more books to tell us about? You know, I could talk about books all day. Uh, I'm sitting in my library right now, and... Uh... By library, I mean I took a, a wall and put bookshelves, floor to ceiling bookshelves, along the entire wall, and I've just uh, been organizing it. I've got a shelf of animal behavior books, I've got a shelf of horse books, I've got a whole wall of fiction books, and then I'm working on my collection of nonfiction books as well. Like this is, uh, I love this, and I loved your podcast on books as well. Well, thank you. I was just looking around here. I've got a bookcase over there of fiction that i haven't read fiction for a long time and then i got all this whoa deep stuff over here like a lot of that and then over here i've got yeah some horse training books and some vet books and yeah but it seems like the the, the books that i've really got into the last few years are all you know not necessarily self-helpy stuff but all non-fiction lots of woo-woo stuff but anyway enough of the books then uh, the second question that you had said that you want me to ask you, and I, I love this question, uh, especially, you know, you know that these questions came from Tim Ferriss's Tribe of Mentors book, and he gets to, to interview some pretty interesting people. And a lot of people, your average person tends to look at failure as failure, like that's oh, a bad thing. But this question is, what's the biggest What's been your biggest failure and how has it helped you? And, and the reason I love this question is because when you get to talk to, you know, successful people like yourself and you get to say what your failure was and how it helped you and really help people kind of embrace failure and embrace that sort of thing rather than look at it like it's a bad thing. So, yeah, what is your, what's been your biggest failure and how has it helped you? Well, let me just back up one sec because what you made, what you're just saying about failure makes me think of uh, one Pat Conroy book in particular, which is called The Losing Season. And it's a whole book brilliantly written about him playing basketball. It's a true story. It's a memoir uh, for a college team. And the team, you know, does mediocrely and then they lose at the end. 
And basically what he, he's, you know, most people, if they're going to write a book or create a movie about a basketball team, it's going to be a team that won. And this is a team that is a below average team. And, you know, he says he learned more about himself and about life from playing on that team than any team that he's ever won on. Wow. I just written that down, the losing season. The losing season. Yeah. Um, I guess probably for me, I, I feel like when I start something new, I usually set the bar pretty high for myself when I take on a new goal. And, and also that my life has been sort of, you know, I've ridden my whole life, but I've done some other sports as well. And, and, you know, had a couple of like sort of minor careers and different things. And every time, you know, in high school, I wanted to play basketball In in college, I ran track and I competed in modern pentathlon. And I had this, you know, I show jumped, when I was with my dad, he's a big show jumper and never in one of those things did I achieve a goal that I had set for myself, you know, the the ultimate goal of where I wanted to go in that sport. And in my mind, every single time when I left, I think I had thought of it as quitting or as a failure. Um, But the way I look at it now is it wasn't, it wasn't quitting. It was moving on. And, um, I don't think what's that saying something about if you shoot for the moon, at least you'll land among the stars or something like that. You know, I think, I I don't think I would change anything about how I set goals. Like I, I think if I go through life, I think I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm okay with that. I think the other big thing I've learned is that some of the things I've done in my life, have been more about the goal than about really enjoying the process. And even with horses, you know, I, I think switching from, you know, show jumping to eventing, going from eventing more into learning about horsemanship, um, you know, even how I relate, how I make a living sort of teaching clinics and, and teaching lessons and, and writing articles and writing books is I've constantly figuring out, that I, it's okay not to have the same goals as other people when you do something. Like it's okay not to have a podcast, or it's okay not to have you know a really successful YouTube channel. If what I want to do is write a book, and that's my way of doing it, that's okay, even if that's not somebody else's definition of success. And that's gotten me to the point now where I think I could. I think I would miss it, but I think I would, I could never compete again with horses and I would still enjoy and love learning about horses and teaching people about horses and trying to understand more about horses myself. Whereas I think a few years ago, the competition and the the goal oriented part of it was that if I didn't have that, I don't know if I would have kept doing horses. And I think there's a lot of, I don't know if this is in in your world at all or anybody listening, but I think there's a lot of people that work with horses that if they couldn't compete, or even if the horses weren't, you know, that horse sport wasn't in the Olympics or whatever it is, they might find something different to do with their life. Like they wouldn't just work with horses for the sake of working with horses. As I've failed at different things, I've realized that if I, if I'm always going to set my goals so high that I'm going to fail, I got to find something that I'm going to enjoy wholeheartedly even if i don't achieve that goal you know so that i can enjoy doing that thing every day maybe not every day you know i think there's always going to be moments where you're 
you're you're you're going on a downswing or you're unhappy or there's something not going right but i think overall like if you look i've actually met people like this like that that are work they're professional horse people and they're working with horses every single day and they're competing and it's taking all their time and energy and money and you just want to look at them and say do you even like horses like do you even do you even like horses like why are you doing this and it's almost like you know, you can't understand it in a way because they've gone down this road where it's become the way they make their living and probably even more than that part of their self-identity. And I think if you're one of the hardest things to ever leave, like as I've switched doing different things in my life, is that idea of your self-identity is is who you think you are. And to sort of rediscover that in, in a new way for myself, like as sort of one of the things I'm going through right now is to be, is to find this happiness, even if I can't you know, have the horse or the money or the time to take a horse to the Olympics? Am I still going to enjoy the process? And maybe, I mean, maybe you're going to ask me in a few years, I was able to make that decision and maybe it makes you even more successful. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. Like when you look at people that are really successful, like a lot of them, I think, first of all, I think there's many different ways to be successful. I think you can be successful, you know, successful in quotation marks. You can achieve a gold medal and you can come off of that gold medal and still be unhappy. I remember reading Bruce Jenner's book. You know who Bruce Jenner is? He won the decathlon. Mm-hmm. It's he said after he won the gold medal in the decathlon, he went through two years of depression. So it's really, that's what, yeah. I saw on, um, I saw on Netflix last night, there is a, um, a new Netflix documentary and I forget what it's called, but it's basically about the epidemic of, of mental health issues with Olympic athletes. Yeah. I'm not surprised. College athletes too. Yeah. And in, you were talking about books before in one of the, when I did the book podcast, one of the books I talked about was a book called backbone. And in that book, the guy, it's like a men's self-help sort of a book, but in that book, this guy says, most men spend all their life trying to get four things at the same time, you know, vocational success, material wealth, health and love. And most men think if I could get those four things at all at the same time, then I'd be happy. Well, most, you know, that's a, that's a tall order. Being healthy, having a good relationship, material wealth and vocational success. And that would be the competing part. That would be the, you know, that'd be the gold medal or whatever. But if he said in the book, most people that, that the unlucky ones get all those four things at the same time and then they realize I'm just as miserable as I was before. And then you got to figure out, okay, what is it that's going to make me happy? And most people have that dangling character where they think if I could just get whatever it is, the gold medal, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. But it's all, that's all that's, all that's external validation stuff. And it's, you know, I think that, I think after, and one of the books I talked about too was, um, Lewis Howe's uh, The Mask of Masculinity, and, and he talks in there about a lot of people who are very, very successful at sports, are successful at sports because that is a, that's a masking of, of being vulnerable, you know what I mean? You know, if I, if I can win enough stuff, people won't question me, and, and it's, yeah, so it's, I, I have, the, I have the, um, the question, you know, when you see successful sports people, like I, I think, I wonder if you're doing it for the right reasons, and you can't tell, but, you know. But yeah, I think that's that's a that's a really good point to make about a lot of people that uh, that are really aiming to to win. Why are they aiming to win? You know, what's what? 
you know, is, is it is it a good reason or is it a is it a bad reason? So yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I might as well hit you with another question then. Okay. Hit me. So this question was: What is the most worthwhile thing you've put your time into? Something that's something that's changed the course of your life. So the uh, the first probably bigger picture answer has got to be my family, my wife and my son. My son is now just turned two years old. I you know I wasn't sure I, we were going to have a son. My wife's a very motivated, driven person. You know, a horse person. She's competed at the World Equestrian Games. And when we got married, I, you know, it was definitely not a, a sure thing. I'd always grown, you know, grown up having the idea, maybe in the back of my mind, that I was going to be a father. But it, it, there's so many things that you hear about having a kid that no matter how many times you hear them, you can't, you don't actually understand it until you actually have a kid. And so it's been a pretty amazing two years for me, you know, how fast time goes by, how quickly they grow up, you know, the, how they play, how they learn the patience that you learn, the being in the moment. And it's really, it's really, uh, I heard, I heard this quote, I'm going to tell you a quote here that I heard a few years ago. And I don't think I even started to understand it until I had a son. This is the quote. Everyone has two lives to live. The second one begins when you realize you only have one. And you know, you only have one life to live. And now that I've got a son, it's become even more obvious how much what you do with your time, like your time is your, probably your most precious commodity and how you choose to spend it. And to be able to now reprioritize my life in that way uh, has been dif difficult in some ways, you know, for the horses and the business, but very rewarding in every other way. I'm still staring at the wall thinking about the quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that a great quote? It is. It's, that's, a, that's a stare at the wall and scratch your chin for a minute kind of quote, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if I were to give a second uh, you know, answer to that question, what to do with my, you know, with horses or my career, it would probably be the process we talked about earlier of trying to become a better writer and not just a better writer, but a writer about horses. And it made me very aware when I wrote that book, I went through it, you know, it's, you know, it's a hundred thousand words. I went through that many times with the editing and it made me very aware of the very particular words that I would use. For example, you know, I might say somewhere in the book, did I make the horse do something or, you know, I might use the word make, I made the horse do this, or did you ask the horse to do this? Or did you cause this to happen? Um, you know, little things like that, that really, you know, on the surface, it's not a big deal. But when you start to see people interacting with horses and the words that they use, um, you know, people that they, they call their horse a jerk or, you know, they, you know, you're teaching a lesson and somebody says, you know, make your horse do this or all these things start to have, I think, a very subtle influence on how you think about horses and also how the people around you and especially kids start to think about horses. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I think your the words you use have a lot to do with the way you perceive the the situation, and and the way you perceive the situation has a lot to do with your energy, and your energy has a lot to do with how the horse responds to the whole thing. So basically, yeah, it's it's I think it's a big thing, and I think a lot of that's caused by your judgment too. I, I yes, I was talking about the ladies that were here yesterday with the Mustang, and I said I don't want to hear the word trailer again. 
somewhere in that conversation, one of them said something, and I said, I, want, I really want you to think about the words you just used. She goes, oh, well, you, you know what I meant. And I said, yeah. I know what you meant, but I, I think that the choice of words that you're using, you're, you're projecting a certain sort of energy in that situation that I don't think is good in that situation. And, and uh, yeah, I, I do think that's that's a, a pretty true thing when it comes to those words. Yeah, I, I don't like it when people use those sorts of words anymore with their horses because I'm kind of new to this. You know, I used to train horses and I was very good at teaching them to be obedient and very good at teaching them to respond to what my ask was. But at the time, I really had no internal energy. I had no, I had no knowledge of self really at the time. So I was just, I had no emotion, so I had no energy. And that, that works good. But, it, you know, like seeing you at that horse expo working with those horses and especially watching, going to Jonathan's one day in Canada and watching work with horses and just seeing how it's almost it's imperceptible but it's i used to think it was like he was giving an imperceptible cue but it's there's a there's, an energy. Energy. Yeah, there's yeah. an energy that you can give off yeah. as, as you bring your life up or down or your you you know that and in a negative way too you know if you're even a little bit angry there's an energy that comes off that the horses pick up on yeah you know jonathan was showing me some liberty stuff with his horse hal and he was talking about how now, see if he gets a bit out of position right here. Before I do anything, I'm going to, I'm going to, he said, I'm not angry at him, but I'm going to get a bit of a dark sort of an energy. And then I'm going to look back here and then I'll just take this stick and I'll swing it. When he catches up, I'm going to go back to that happy energy. So he said, so when I'm doing a, like a Liberty performance, if Hal starts to kind of leave a bit, all I've got to do is change how I feel on the inside and go from like a happy energy to a bit of a stern energy and Hal will go, oh, sorry, and suck back over here. And when he said that, I was like, Oh my God. I remember I spent a day at Jonathan's and that night on my Facebook group, I wrote, what I do with horses is basic, basic math. What this guy does is quantum physics. Well, that was before I knew what quantum physics was. And now I know what quantum physics is. Yes, he does do quantum physics. Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, I'm just on the, the very fringes of understanding that now, but I understand yeah. that it works. It's, it's just, I, I don't know anything you know, about gonna, quantum physics. Uh, Work, but um, there's a really good book again for uh, called uh, "Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman." Have you ever heard of Richard Feynman? No. What's it called? Surely what? Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, and Feynman is spelled F-E-Y-N-M-A-N, and he's one of the most famous physicists. I think he works in quantum physics of all time, and I think this quote is from him. And he says, um, he says. If you think you understand quantum physics, then you don't understand quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the same with horses. Like when somebody comes to me and they say, you know, I'm, I really understand this, or I'm an expert at this, or I feel really, you know, like I'm really good at doing this. The first thing I'm thinking is like, you're not good at this at all. Like, where's the humility? You know, like, when you start to understand something, there becomes way more of a humility about how you approach it. Oh yeah, but you you got to understand you got to understand that that point that they're at, you have to go through that. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the saying says, it's 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 what you learn after you thought you knew everything that's important. But you can't skip the I've got it. I totally understand it now. I've got it. You can't skip that point. So, and that's the thing I've really found is I've become really a lot less judgmental about anybody who's 
at where they're at. Because at, at some point in time, I was like, yeah, I, I got this. I, I understand all this stuff. And then I came to realize how much I didn't understand it. And now I know how much I don't understand. I understand I don't understand a lot. Um, but I, that's a point you have to go through. It's not like, you know, it's, it's, some people might get stuck together the rest of their life and not actually get through that. But I don't think you can, I don't think you can just do not pass, go collect two, you know, do not go to jail, go to collect $200 or whatever. There's a monopoly. You, you've got to get to that point and get past that point. I just think some people get to that point and get stuck. And once again, no judgment. If you're stuck there, you're stuck there. That's, that's, that's your journey. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think you've got to get coming out the other side of that thing. Yeah, I agree. I, I've I've tried to become a lot. It's you know, the writing the book was also a big eye opener for me in terms of judgment because you're when you're writing something like that, you're really putting yourself out, you know, out there. It's a, being pretty vulnerable in a way, and you start thinking about the kind of judgment that you have about other people or about yourself, and it starts to you know, you you start to think about what's in, what's important and how that helps or hinders your relationship with yourself or with your other people, and. Um, not just on the journey with horses, but also how people work with horses. I've been trying to be less judgmental. You know, if you think about, if you had, for example, a spectrum of how, you know, how tough you could be with a horse, you know, on one, on one end, you might have, you know, somebody that is very confident and very good, but they can be very tough. They draw firm boundaries. Somebody like, uh, somebody like Clinton Anderson. I'm sure you've seen Clinton work with horses. Have you? Yeah. So he's very good, but there's, there's very firm boundaries. And I listened to a podcast with him and he said, you know, he relates to people the same way in the podcast. He says, you know, if your kids like you before, I I think he's kind of joking, but he's like, if your kids like you before you're, before they're 30 years old, you're probably not doing a good job as a parent. You know, like he's like, he's like, you got to draw firm boundaries with kids and horses. Like there's got to be an amount of respect there that borders sometimes on fear. And then, you know, then you get to the middle part with people that don't want to use much you know, positive or negative, you know, kind of reinforcement. And and to me, that's somebody sort of like Elsa St. Clair, who I think, you know, like she mm-hmm. doesn't want to have much food involved, but she also doesn't want to have much, you know, negative pressure involved. She's very close to that middle ground. And then, you know, on the way other end of the spectrum, you have a lot of the, you know, the diehard clicker trainers and, and positive reinforcement trainers, which are all about nothing negative, only positive. And, you know, I read an interesting podcast about somebody that, you know, took, eight weeks to get her horse even two feet on the trailer because it was all about click treat click treat there was no leading there was no stick there was no nothing like it was it was very much about positive reinforcement so you have this whole spectrum of people on how they work with horses and when i go watch some of those people work with horses i try to think it doesn't matter where they are on the spectrum is there something that i can learn from them and and take away and make it part of my own program yes uh, certainly there's a, have you ever heard of a, um, there's a website called Equisoma. You ever heard of it? No. So it's a lady named Sarah Schlotty and she is a, um, a therapist, human therapist, you know, and her deal is all viewing horse training through a trauma based lens. And she has this really good, um, blog that she's written about training styles and, there's the one end of the scale, like it's all negative reinforcement. There's very, very firm boundaries. And she explains how you may have been brought up and ex- life experiences you've had. And then there's the other end where I, I will not use any pressure whatsoever. I'm only positive reinforcement. And then she she goes and she lists. So 
uh, you know, when when you were growing up, did you not have? Were you not allowed to have a voice? And and so that now that you feel bad about telling your horse a kind of a voice sort of thing, it was it was, re- it was really interesting because it's it your training style that you choose has a lot to do with your yeah. life trauma, your life traumas. It was fascinating, and and she was equally. She addressed both ends of it equally. Like if you are have huge boundaries with horses and it's all about obedience and stuff, this is your trauma. But if you are a clicker trainer and you won't put any pressure on a horse ever because you feel like it's bad, here's your trauma. And they'll well, both. I'll, I'll, give you a couple, I'll give you a couple of specific examples of exactly that. One is, um, have you read Buck Brannaman's book, The Faraway Horses? So he talks about, you know, his tough childhood and how with his foster parents, he, you know, he developed some of these firm boundaries and how he relates to his childhood very closely mirrors how he relates to horses. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I spent a few days with a a clicker trainer that, you know, she came out to my farm in Florida and uh, she gave me the whole rundown and we worked with, you know, seven or eight of my horses and we did the whole thing. And she basically you know, said what brought her on this path is that when she was a child, she was sexually abused. And mm-hmm. she said she never wants to put any other living creature in that position of saying, you have to do that. And mm-hmm. she's, you know, for, from her perspective, if it takes three months to get a horse to lead because she's going to go click, tweak, click, tweak. She's going to take three months to do it. Like she's not going to pull on that rope or use a stick and her, you know, and those are her expectations and, and she's gotten quite good at that. But like exactly what you're saying is, uh, is how they're relating to horses is a lot about how they relate to themselves and how they relate to the people. Like they think the, they think, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to word it exactly, but how they think horses want to be treated is a little bit how they want to be treated. Right. Yeah. And it's, and I, for me, I think a lot of people tend to be one way. Um, yeah. And for me, I've had a massive change in the last four years to where I went from viewing the world one way to viewing the world the other way. And the thing I've got out of that is when I was viewing the world the way I used to view the world, I was right. Because it worked. I'm traveling around the world, giving clinics, people's horses come in, they leave better. I train horses, they come in, they leave better. It works. It's all jolly good. And then I had a horse that it didn't work with, and he really made me kind of step back and look at things from a completely different perspective. And now I do look at everything from a completely different perspective. And so if I see somebody who is in the same place I was four years ago, and they're like, I'm right, I think you are. In... in, in, in the way you view the world, you're exactly right. And so I used to, I used to be judgmental about people who weren't doing what I was doing because I was right, for God's sake, yeah. you know. Yeah. And now I'm like, hey, everybody's at, everybody's at where they're at and everybody uh, does a certain thing because of every experience they've ever had in their life. And it's kind of like right now we're in the middle of this bloody election thing here in the U.S. And one half the people thinks the other half are idiots and the other half the people think the other half are idiots, but they're both right. Not that the other half are idiots. Their view on the world is right according yeah. to every experience they've ever had. Yeah. And the other side, their view on the world is right according to every experience they've ever had. And, and that's the thing I don't see, and I don't want to get into the politics of it, but the thing I don't see with all this political debate is any 
acknowledgement of the other person's view or I can see how you might see things that way. It's like you're right. And it's the whole division thing. It's, it's, um, it's kind of, I, 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 I actually wonder why that is. Like you'd think, I wonder if they see that as a weakness to say that I don't, to say like, I understand your point of view or I want to try to learn more about your point of view because it seems so, I mean, it doesn't seem like it takes that much enlightenment to try to think about compromise and understanding somebody else's point of view. Yeah. You know, um, so you've watched my octopus teacher. I watched that one night, but the next night I watched the social dilemma. Have you watched that on Netflix yet? You know, we just started, we just started it. I've watched the first one. Of it. So I get the, when you get to when you get yeah. to the end of that, your question will be answered. Okay, okay. The, the The answer to that question is in there, and the fact we're all getting fed, the algorithms are feeding us more of divisiveness. Well, well, more of what we, you know, if if, if they yeah. think you, you're a righty, they give you far right wing stuff. If they think you're a lefty, they're giving you far left wing stuff. So you're not you're getting more of what you look at rather than a, a balanced sort of a view. And uh, yeah, sorry. Got off on the politics. Well, no, I think that I think that's interesting, actually. Yeah, I think it's just you know that I think that's the thing with horses, and and I would say, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word politically. You know, I'm not a citizen in the US, so I can't vote anyway. I'm a resident, um, but I probably have quite a few differing views on, say, political issues than I would have done four years ago, and it's the horses that have that have facilitated that. I just, I just, you know, I understand that everybody's problems that they're having are caused by some sort of past trauma that they haven't worked through horses the same. And so you're a lot less judgmental about the, the, the problem they're presenting you with and more empathetic to the fact that there might've been things that caused it to be that way rather than that's how it is. You know, it's like when you said with the ju- you know, people with their judgment about their horses, oh, he's a jerk or whatever. He's not. That's your perception of what he is. But if you look, you know, behind every behind every behavior is a is a feeling, and behind that feeling is an experience. You know, so yeah, interesting stuff. Speaking of that stuff and relationships, the next question you wanted me to ask you, and this is a great question. I love this question. Is what is your relationship with fear? So I read this question a few times and I was kind of trying to figure it out because it's, there's a lot of, you know, with fear, I think it's quite a nuanced question because you can be slightly uncomfortable. You can be anxious. You can be mildly fearful. You can be very fearful. You can have overwhelming fear. You know, I've seen a horse once I saw a horse kill, kill himself. He was blind with fear and he ran into a fence post and he, he died right in front of me. And it was one of the most horrible experiences of my life. Um, and I was trying to think about myself and, and think about some of the things that I'm scared of. And I think, you know, for the sake of this, for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to take something kind of middle of the road, which probably a lot of people are scared of, which is public speaking. Were you ever scared of public speaking work? I probably still am if it wasn't something like horses. I can stand up there and wind me up and push me out. I can talk for 10 hours. But if you wanted me to, I think the public speaking thing, if I had to say like a eulogy at someone's funeral and to get up there and be very heartfelt and sincere, that would be very hard. I'm getting better at that, but that's always been something that I've 
I've struggled with. But the public speaking, it all depends if I'm comfortable with the subject. If it's if I'm comfortable with the subject, nah, the public speaking is probably not a big fear for me. So growing up, um, all through elementary school, all through high school, all through five years of university, um, I think I only spoke in front of a class or a crowd twice because I did everything I could to get out of every other possible situation, like whether I was sick or whether I chose a different assignment or a makeup test or an essay or whatever it was. And um, I mean, what's two things started to change with that fear. The first thing is that I, I made up my mind that I wanted, this was something that I wanted to get better at. And it's because I felt like there was some stuff I wanted to be able to share. Uh, and it was because some of the biggest changes in the world and some of the people I admired most were able to make those changes by being comfortable speaking to a crowd. And through um, Equine Canada and, and Sport Canada, they had a program for athletes where you could go in and they would have somebody teach you public speaking. So I, I went into this. And there's just six of us in a classroom with an instructor. We were all in our 20s, and the instructor was maybe just three or four years older than us. And um, I tell you, even just doing that, like we would go around the table and just be asked to speak about things for for a little while, is like I felt way out of my comfort zone, like wanting to leave the room and not come back. And um, and I would, I mean, I would call that fear. I wouldn't just call that anxiety. Like I was, I think I was scared. And, um, and I stuck with it. I did three or four of those, uh, classes. And then I put myself in the position to volunteer, to speak to some, uh, schools, like some classrooms and stuff like that about sport and about change and stuff like that. Like they, in British Columbia at the time, they had a program where they matched athletes up with elementary schools to go and talk. And I found that hard as well. And I, but I did get a little more comfortable as I went along. And then I guess my the biggest change is exactly what you're what what the way you feel, which is that as I discovered more and more and learned more and more about horses, and I felt like I had something that I wanted to share and that I felt more confident speaking about, then I then I went on a trajectory that you know at the beginning I was even though I had stuff to 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 speak about, I would get tongue tied. I would, you know, my mouth would go, go dry. I would want to like run off the speaking stage or platform, but I went, I kept putting myself in that situation, um, whether it was a crowd of two people or a crowd of 40 people or whatever it was. And just by through the repetition and I would have a lot of preparation usually like I would have, I wouldn't write out word for word, but I would, you know, go through my notes many, many times uh, to be as well prepared as I could, I got more and more comfortable speaking to a crowd. And I think, um, you know, now I can go to a clinic and have a hundred people watching and I can speak, you know, for eight hours about horses and teach and talk to the crowd. And, um, also part of that was learning about, it's okay to have my own style of speaking. Um, you know, which is, you know, some people are going to be motivators. Some people are going to use humor. Some people are going to inspire. Some people are going to use facts or, or or anecdotes or whatever it is. Everybody's going to have their own style of of teaching, and I had to a little bit find my own style, my my a way that I felt comfortable relating to people. 
And, um, and there's still, there's still fear for me. I would say now when I, when I speak, especially if it's not about horses, but I definitely, um, I've gotten better at it. And so I'd say that's my relationship with a lot of things with fears. I try to, I try to break it down and start small, just like I would with a horse. Like if a horse is scared of something, I try to think, you know, how can I start at the beginning? How can I break it down? How can I introduce this in a way that gradually gets them more confident? I read a book recently and I can't remember what it was, but they were talking about people who were afraid of, uh, I didn't think it was public speaking. I think it might've been rejection or something or other, but their, their, their thing was they were to go up to strangers and ask for things that the stranger wouldn't give them to practice getting a no, like being able to ask for something, you know, you're going to get a no. And every once in a while you'll get a, get a yes too. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. It was an interesting thing. It was just about it was just about breaking it down and starting to you know instead of talking to a room of a hundred people, it was go up to one person. But our your friend and mine, Jonathan Field, I was at dinner with him one night at uh, a horse expo. My wife and I were with him, and Jonathan. I don't know how it came up, but Jonathan said, "You know what? I used to realised at some point in time that I had this fear of being punched in the face." He said, <laughs> So I started, I started taking boxing lessons and he says, now I go to boxing three nights a week or something or other. And he says, he said, um, you know, you get punched in the face enough. After a while, it doesn't bother you anymore. He goes, like right now, you want to punch me in the face? I'll stand up, brother. You can punch me in the face right now. He did half a bottle of wine too. But he said, you want to punch me in the face right now? And see that, that right there, that's, um, I'm, I'm still not there yet. So I read, I was, I was looking up uh, public speaking and there's a lot of places that say it's the, uh, it's a lot of people's number one fear. Uh, mm. It comes ahead of things, um, you know, like, you know, car accidents and plane crashes and stuff like that. And uh, there's a Jerry Seinfeld quote, which is, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death is number two. Does that sound right? This means to an average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. I just said that the eulogy would something you know, I have a hard time doing. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's that's a yeah, that's a good one. So that's a good answer about fear. Um, it's always a really interesting question that one. Um, and I've got one one more question on here, and and. This question was once again from Tim Ferriss's Tribe of Mentors book. And the question is, what do you feel is the worst advice given in your profession? And and there was a caveat that said, knowing that our professions are probably not a normal, you know, like you're an accountant or a, you know, a whatever, I mean, you know, Tim Ferriss has interviewed some really interesting people and we're, you know, what we do is not like people say, what do you do for a living? Like, I have no idea. I don't know. (laughs) I couldn't give you a name. I used to be a horse trainer. Um, And so, yeah. So what do you feel in, and I don't know if you want to put on your horsemanship hat or you want to put on your eventing hat or you just want a general horse hat or clinician hat or whatever hat, what do you feel is the worst advice given in your profession well, I've, uh, again, I've been thinking about this and I came up with a couple of different answers. Uh, the first two are going to be a little shorter and then I'm going to go into talk a little bit more about the third one. So specifically to do with uh, 
eventing, one thing that we that I hear a lot, you know, when people are talking about what horse they want to have for eventing, is I'll say hear somebody say something like, you know, this horse isn't good enough to be a pure show jumper. He's not uh, doesn't move well enough to be a dressage horse, and he's uh, he's pretty hot and he kind of rushes at jumps. So I think he'd be a good event horse. <laughs> is that is that like I want to die? Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to so rush good. at the I want to rush at the jumps that don't move. Yeah. So that it, you know, when in jumping, especially cross country, there's a big difference between a horse taking you to jump and and pulling you to jump in a thoughtful seeking way in a way that gives them impulsion and energy and and there's a whole nother kind of horse which i see quite often more often than i'd like where the horse rushes around a cross-country course out of anxiety like they're running on sort of a fear and and some sometimes people will come off the course and they'll just say you know my horse just loves cross-country he just runs around there i can hardly stop him and and that's um that's probably the worst, you know, the worst advice for a horse to have. Like how, if you think of a horse for eventing like that, you know, these days eventing is getting more and more competitive at the top levels. And a lot of the horses that, you know, they used to be thoroughbreds off the track, or they used to be horses that couldn't make it as a dressage horse or a show jumping horse, but you really are getting more and more horses bred specifically for venting as a combination of thoroughbred and warm blood that can do all three phases. They can jump clean. They've got the movement for dressage. I mean, not as, you know, not like a dressage horse, but they've got good movement and they can, they can go around a cross country course for eight or nine or sometimes 10 minutes without getting tired. Um, so that was my first thing that I thought of. And the second thing was a little quote that I heard, uh, Karen, Karen told me the other day and she said, she said, Tick, you've got to learn the trade before you learn the tricks of the trade. And I just thought that was good advice. That's not bad advice. That's good advice. Uh, sort of like in writing, uh, you got to learn grammar before you learn, you know, if you're going to write a book and break all the rules. There's actually a good Australian book, um, True History of the Kelly Gang. I don't know if you've read that. True History of the Kelly Gang. And uh, in that entire book, I don't think there's any commas and the punctuation and grammar is almost non-existent. And it's written from the perspective of, I think, uh, Kelly, I forget his name, but he's a, a gang leader in Australia. Ned and, Kelly. Uh, Ned Kelly, yeah. And he, you know, uh, they write the book from his perspective. It's a fantastic book, but the grammar's pretty much non-existent. So um, I've, I've got a big fat book here written by an Australian author, uh, Australian writer named Peter Fitzsimmons, who's an amazing writer. And it's on the Kelly gang and I haven't read it yet. It's one of those ones I picked up at the airport in Sydney or something coming back, but this guy can really, really write. But yeah, Ned Kelly was a, uh, he's what we called a bush ranger. He'd be an outlaw here in America, but he was like Billy the Kid sort of thing. You know, he was, uh, he's very, very famous. His last, his last words were such is life. When they went to hang him, they said, yeah. any large words and the last words. And he said, such is life. And he, yeah, everybody in Australia knows who Ned Kelly is. He's, he's, yeah. he's famous. Yeah. And then my last thing is just a little story that I want to, I want to share that shows how advice that I've given and gotten has changed a little bit, how you said you've gone through this journey in the past four or five years where what you might've thought of as good advice or bad advice to you have changed your perspective on the, on the world and on horses. And uh, I got really interested in sports psychology for a while and, uh, you know, I'd attend lectures and read books. And we had this sports psychologist in British Columbia come out and give a talk. 
And uh, he's, you know, he said, when I graduated, I got my PhD, I was working with uh, a lot of top athletes, I was new to the profession. And I thought, aside from the actual sport practice that you're doing, you know, time in the saddle or time playing hockey or dribbling the basketball or whatever it is, aside from the actual practice time, the next most important thing is your mental game. Um, you know, if you've never picked up a basketball, it doesn't do any good to have a mental game. You also have to have the technical skills. You have to actually practice your sport. But he's like, the next most important thing is that. He said, and then I went on in my uh, profession for for 10 years. I got a little older. And he's like, I actually realized that the mental game is the third most important thing. Number one is time spent practicing. Number two is nutrition. Number three is your mental game. He's like, because I was helping people with their mental game and they were practicing, but they had the worst diets. You know, they would be eating fast food. They would eat at midnight. They wouldn't have breakfast. And it just, it just started to affect their sports so much, their performance so much that I actually have to say having better nutrition is actually more important than this, the sports psychology. He's like, and then I went on in my career for another 10 years. And this is when he's now giving us the talk and he's saying, and now I actually think number one is, time spent practicing. Number two is getting a good night's sleep. Number three is nutrition. And number four is the mental game. He's like, because I was just seeing people that were staying up all night. They were on their phones. They were on their iPads. They were watching TV and they would show up at practice or at games without a good night's sleep. And he's like, all four of these things are vital, but you, he's like, he just changes how he thought about uh, his profession and about what athletes need. And with horses, I've gone through a similar uh, kind of uh, way that I've heard about getting advice and giving advice. And uh, I used to, you know, I guess in what you might call a traditional way of learning about horses, a lot of what you learn about is control. So I, I, you know, I used to, whether I use that word or not, control used to be the most important thing that I would learn and teach, you know, how you use the reins or the spurs or the whip or the draw reins or whatever it is that you can have control over the situation. You know, and then when I was with David O'Connor, one of the one of the quotes that he has, it's a great quote. He says, the art of riding is about communication. And then I started to really think about how communication is different than control. Like for control, I could be there and I could physically raise your hand or I could for communication. I could say through these radio waves, I could say, could you please raise your hand? And from 3000 miles away, you could raise your hand. It's about communicating. And with horses, it's all about communicating. And I, you know, I went for, for probably four years saying communication is the most important thing. And now actually, I think there's something more important than communication. And that is motivation, which is why we do what we do and why horses do what they do. Because I think you can communicate to a person or a horse all day long. And if they don't want to do it, like you're, you're my little brother, he's a, he's a, you know, he's not little anymore. He's older now, but he's uh, my little brother and he's a substitute teacher. And he says he'll go into schools sometimes like, you know, difficult schools or in, in rough neighborhoods. And he says, there's all this teaching going on all day. There's all these teachers teaching. And he says, there's almost no learning. No motivation. No motivation. And, you know, you can have kids that aren't that smart that do really well because they're motivated. And you can have really smart kids that don't do well because they're not motivated. And I think with horses, that's been really one of the big things I've been looking at in the past couple of years is trying to understand what motivates horses in general and also what motivates every horse in particular. 
Yeah, have you ever read The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle? No, but I will add that to my list. Uh, that was one of the books I mentioned in my book podcast, but Daniel Coyle wrote a book called The Talent Code, and what he did was he went around to all these what they called talent hotbeds around the world. There was a Russian tennis gym and there was a Japanese violin studio and there was a soccer place in Brazil, and they they pour out more world-class athletes out of these particular places than anybody else. And he said, what, are they, what is it they're doing? And one of them was the way they practice, mm-hmm. but one of them was uh, the motivation part of it too. It's, it's a fascinating book about about how to, um, you know, what he talks about how talent is just myelination of nerve endings, but talked about uh, that talent is not an innate born something you're born with. It's it's something you can actually work on if you understand how to work on on talent. Um, you just said something a minute ago about that guy said a good night's sleep. Have you ever heard of Sir Dave Brailsford? No. So Sir Dave Brailsford, he wasn't Sir at the time. He was a he had a um, a degree in business, I believe. Uh, anyway, he was a British amateur cyclist, but but cycling Britain or whatever the the governing body of cycling in Britain had him come along to take over the whole program, and at that time. Britain had won an, had not won an Olympic medal in 110 years in cycling. And he came in and he started doing this thing that he calls marginal gains. And this is so much horse training, it's not funny. Marginal gains. Instead of trying to change big things, he changed everything just a little bit to get a, get a marginal gain. He found an, a valve stem that goes on the bike tyres that weighed half an ounce less than the other valve stem. He figured out the best bed to sleep on. He... He um, he realized that, you know, uh, a, a cyclist is an aerobic athlete and has to have very good breathing. But if you have a slight cold or something, really not as good. So he had his athletes wash their hands on the hour, every hour from the time they woke up in the morning to the time they went to bed. What do we do these days? Wash our hands all day. Yeah. Um, when they went to their first Olympics, they bought their own beds. They went to the Olympic Village and they threw the other beds out. They bought their beds and they get the best night's sleep. No one was allowed to shake hands with anybody during the Olympics, which is a bit like right now. Wash yeah. your hands on every hour. Do not touch anybody to stop from getting it. Anyway, his first Olympics they went to, they won seven out of eight available gold medals or something or other. Wow. And it's, and it's this thing called marginal gains. Yeah. And, you know, if you can get a little bit of sleep every night, if you can breathe just a little bit better, if your bike weighs just a little bit less, if you – and it's, it's, it's like I think at some point in time when you're training horses, uh, the, the things that we help people with are not huge big things. They're just marginal gains. They're just little things, you know. Just the little things make up a big difference. But he's a, he's a fascinating guy to study if you want to talk about sports psychology and, and, and having – I don't know if anybody's ever had that huge an impact on any one particular Olympic team, but like I said, uh, British cycling hasn't won a medal in 110 years or something rather than they win seven out of eight available medals at that Olympics. And I think the next one, they do much the same thing. And it was all this, uh, and that's why he's Sir Dave Brailsford now because the Queen knighted him because of his um, his efforts for British cycling. But, yeah, in, very interesting dude to look up. I will check that out. You'll check that out. So we've been chatting here for about two hours now. Um, is, is there anything before we finish up here that uh, I, that the world needs to hear from Tick Maynard? Well, I, I got one more quote here I could read you as our last oh, yes, quote. yes, please, please. Is that all right? That's so, uh, you know, when I think about what motivates 
you know, people is a whole nother subject, but what I'm reading, you know, Temple, do you know who Temple Grandin is? Yeah. Yeah. So she, uh, she talks about four things that motivate horses, which is instincts, uh, learned behavior, aggression, and fear. And then, uh, you know, a number of other people in the horsemanship world talk about four other things that they use, which is uh, safety, comfort, play, uh, and food. You know, and then I've started to go down a little path myself, which is uh, looking at things that are a little bit deeper, like using curiosity to motivate a horse. A lot, you know, in, in cross country, getting a horse used to the water or a liver pool. If you can understand how to use a cur- horse's curiosity, get them to used to new things, it's such a valuable tool and it makes it so much more fun for both of you. And now I'm actually reading a book. Uh, I just got it. It's called Next of Kin. And it's about a uh, chimpanzee, one of the first chimpanzees to learn, you know, 400 or 500 words. And when they were first teaching this chimpanzee, these words, they used very, uh, very traditional operant to, you know, training techniques, which is when they learned a sign language word, they would give them, they would either tickle them, which he loved, or they would give them food. And they actually found that when they did that, he would learn, but he would learn slowly. And then this, all the researchers, they all speak in sign to each other when they're around the chimp. They were saying something about a toothbrush or something like that. And they were doing this sign with their hand up by their mouth going back and forth. And the next day, without having taught this chimpanzee that word, the chimp started to sign that. And they started to actually realize that a primate, like a person, is that if you start rewarding learning and creativity, you actually hinder the learning process because the chimpanzees and the people are so wired to want to learn and want to be creative that if you start rewarding it, it actually slows down the process and they start thinking more about the food or they get distracted by the tickles. And they showed with chimps as well, if they gave them stuff to draw with, um, they would, they would enjoy drawing for long periods of time. But if you started reward, rewarding drawing with food is they would be less creative. They would spend less time and they'd just try to get something up on the paper. And so I've been thinking about all these things that motivate horses. And then something came up on my Facebook, um, which kind of ties it all together. And I don't even know who wrote this. So if somebody's listening and they wrote that, they can let me know. But this is, um, this is something that somebody put about Anthony Bourdain. Do you know who Anthony Bourdain mm-hmm. is? Yep. Uh, was. was yeah um this is something they put after his death and uh for those of you that don't know him he he's a cooking and chef celebrity and he committed suicide a few years ago and this is what they wrote i thought it was impossible to have a better life than anthony bourdain but his final bittersweet gift just knocked me on my ass with the stark reminder that adventure love prosperity, prestige, anything we aspire to at all is really just the currency we use to buy the four things that really matter. Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphins. Realizing that even that kiss that melts your heart only melts it because those four fairy godmothers wave their magic wands and turn your brain into a freaking princess. But if our brain hits us with a really shitty exchange rate, If suddenly winning that Academy Award only buys us a day's ration of serotonin, then how the hell are we supposed to stock up for our whole lives? That Anthony Bourdain can stand on the highest mountain and feel nothing but a desire to move toward oblivion 
is all I need to kick me in the ass and ask the most important question. How's my exchange rate? What can I do to get more joy out of everything I'm presented with, big or small? How does anyone do that? I guess there begins one's lifelong quest for God, psychedelic drugs, transcendental meditation, or whatever the hell else you need to do to bring true value to the external pleasures of the world. Anything that promises, not pleasure, but perspective. There's a good case to be made that those are the things worth seeking first, before even love and success. Because watching my little boy flood his brain with happiness because he found a cool stick on the lawn is all the evidence I need that how you experience is so much more important than what you experience. Boom, right there. Wow, that is, uh, <laughs> that. Do you know who, do you know Stephen Peters, Dr. Stephen Peters? Who's that? That wrote Evidence-Based Horsemanship with Martin. Oh, Bell. yeah. I've got that book. So I'm supposed to, I actually was supposed to do a podcast with him last week and we had technical difficulties. So we just talked for two hours, but didn't record it. (laughs) But um, yeah, he's, he's all over that sort of stuff too. But yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing right there. That whole, um, yeah, the, the excitatory um, chemicals, you know, I just hear probably about four months ago did a, found you can do a neurotransmitter test. And so I did a test on my neurotransmitters and found out why I had depression. No serotonin, no dopamine, no GABA, no neuroepinephrine, no nothing. The doctor said to me, you're basically running on empty. So what do you, what do, you do about that? Uh, I am taking a lot of different supplements that, that help with that. And I'm also, uh, so she's a, a naturopath. So I went up there every week for about six weeks and got a, a big old IV bag full of stuff that's supposed to get that going again. I've got an appointment with her on Monday to have another chat, but we're going to do another neurotransmitter test here in a little while um, and see if it's changed. But it was, for me, it was, it was, what was cool about it was the fact that, you know, for the longest time I've just had this, Blah, you know this apathy and you get you get very self-judgmental about it and you you know you become your own worst enemy and when when you get the news that hey there is a chemical reason you feel like that then it removes you from oh it's just me and I suck or whatever and it's like oh well, you can almost get like you mean I can do something about it you know it, it it's quantifiable yeah she said you're running on uh, you're running on empty and you're totally running on empty and anxiety. And I have a, I have a, um, I have low blood pressure, lowish, and I have a low pulse rate. My heart rate's about 45 to 48. You know, so I've got a heart, I've got the heart rate of an Olympic athlete, but I think it's just completely shut down. You know, it's not, but I, for someone who's apparently run on anxiety, I should have a high heart rate, but I don't because I think it's, you know, it's not hypo arousal. It's it's not hypo arousal. It's hypo arousal. But yeah, th- those chemicals, those four things you talked about right there, um, yeah, they're the they're the important bits. And if you don't have them, life's pretty life's pretty grey. So I'm in the middle of, and I do feel a lot better. You know, I, I take all sorts of different. Um, well, they're not medicines; they're supplements to to help boost that back up. So here here in a bit, we'll find we'll do a um. I'll do another neurotransmitter test and find out what's going on. Yeah. 
but those are the important ones. And I, somewhere in my phone, I've got some notes written from a book that I was reading, and it, it was basically saying that the reason people get addicted to certain drugs is because they have a lack of certain things. And like cocaine's the same as serotonin, and heroin's the same as dopamine, and you, you know, like they all those things replace something in you that you you don't actually have. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to figure out, you know, all these different ways we talk about working with horses is you're looking for when they're learning stuff, you're looking for those same chemical yep. reactions. To happen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Once you understand that. And the thing, you know, going back way back in the conversation, when I first saw you at um, Equine Affair working with those horses, one of the things that you said that I'd never really considered too much was play. You you immediately started out talking about we're going to see if we can use play to help these horses. And that's that's one of the things at the time that fascinated me. Like that's something I've never really given any thought to. Yeah. And using play with horses is, you know, when you see Jonathan Field with some of his horses, you know, I've you know, if you've seen a lot of Liberty trainers, there's many ways to train Liberty horses because essentially you need two things for a good Liberty horse, you either need, you need the horse to stay with you. So you either need to make being with you really good or being away from you really bad. And there's lots of ways to do those two things. But if you have this feeling about you, the way that Jonathan does, where you can create a sense of interest of play with the horse wanting to be around you, especially if a horse is kind of a playful horse anyway, then all of a sudden you just work on that draw so much more and the, and, and the, there's no working, there's, no drilling through something. It's just the play that he does with horses and it becomes so much, you know, it's fun for him. It's fun for the horse. It's fun to watch. Um, the trouble with play is when you really bring it out in certain ways is the way horses play can often be big and strong and fast and dangerous. And it can take a lot of experience depending on how you're bringing that play out. Yeah. When I, um, when I was at Jonathan's and I was watching him work with Hal and the other horses, and that's the thing that really hit me was like this, I've seen Liberty before, but this Liberty, the connect, you know, the horse wants to be with him because it's a cool place to be, not it's the least bad place to be. Yes. Yeah. And it was like, I've not, I had not seen that before. I've, I'd not seen Liberty done that way. And the way I'd seen Liberty done was, you know, if you're away from me, I'm going to put pressure on you. When you come over here, I'll take the pressure off, but it's not a, it's not a, the draw is, is, is basically staying away from a bad spot rather than, a desire to be over there for a good reason. You know, it's not escaping something bad. It's, it's, a, it's, it's attracted to something good. And that really kind of blew me away. And that's, yeah, that's the myth, the man, the magic of Jonathan Fields. That's, that's the golden ticket, yeah. Okay, well, we're probably going to have to pull this thing up. Otherwise, people are going to have to, like, <laughs> you know, you'll have, you'll have somebody who's really into this thing they, and they'll be driving around the block. Like, I don't want to stop and go in the house because I've got to go in the house and cook dinner and I'll just stay out here and I'll just finish up listening to Tick and all his wisdom right here. Yeah. Tick, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Um, how can people find, find you, learn more about you, get into your stuff, all that sort of thing? Um, I mean, I don't really keep up to date with much social media stuff. We do have a Facebook uh, thing, Tick Maynard or, or Copperline Farm. I, I think we have a website, but it's not very up to date. You know, there's, you know, if anybody's interested, I'd love it if you got a copy of that book and you sent me a note if you enjoyed it or you had any questions about it. Um, you can also, I've got some, uh, some of my techniques for teaching on two 
uh, online platforms. One of them is the Horseman's University, and the other one is the Noel Floyd Equestrian Masterclass. So if anybody's interested in any of those things, then check it out. And we'll uh, we'll put those in the show notes too in case uh, people have trouble with the spelling. People might think your name's Tick, but it's actually Thomas Ian Kelvin Maynard. That's right. And that's how you got yeah. Tick. That's right. It's my initials, yeah. There you go. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, everybody listening at home, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to Tick as much as I did talking to him. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time on an episode of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.